thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. What about side by side with a friend? I... I could do that. Yours, mine, mine, theirs. Hey everybody and welcome to Yours, Mine and Theirs, the only democratic movie podcast where this week we will take credit for defeating the Nazis... Mordor and solving peace in the Middle East. My name is Roy, and when I get stung by a bee, I also look just like the marshmallow face orc in the Lord of the Rings: colon, Return of the King: colon, Extended Edition. Oh, that guy. Hey everybody, I'm John, and one of these movies was so long we almost shall not podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mike. I'm John's brother, and I wish none of this had ever happened. So do all who appear on the Yours, Mine, and Their podcast, but that is not for them to decide. All they have to decide is what to do with their time on the podcast. <laughs> and I am cheating a little bit. That's not from Return of the King, but uh, <laughs> I'll another one. Neither was John. <laughs> so mine wasn't from Return of the King? Is that what you're saying? No, yours was from Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, well, it, it's... Okay, well, that's our... I'm already saying my recurring character is two Madsen boys pretending a Gandalf quote was from the movie we watched, but it wasn't. <laughs> John, do you remember when we went to Hollywood and there was the guy dressed as Gandalf and uh, we took a picture of him when he was at a distance, which, you know, we're supposed to pay them to take a picture. And he did raise up his staff and he yelled at us, none shall pass. Do you, do you remember that? I no, he must have cast a spell on yeah, me. He must have. It was right before we watched Alien versus Predators in the Grauman Theater. <laughs> the Grauman Theater. That, was, that was a great flick. Yeah, no yeah. one was in the theater that time. That was a good one to pick. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That All guy. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, hey, here we are with our podcast. Mike, welcome, sir. Welcome. You're uh, one of the 20 Madsons that have yeah. been on the podcast recently. So go ahead and, uh, and tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I was going to say, for careful listeners of the podcast, if you go back and go through the archives, you'll find John has 41 brothers. It's pretty amazing, and yeah. we're all kind of making our way onto the podcast here. So I am the the brother closest in age to John. I'm just five years older than him, and uh, and I really love your podcast. I, I am a professor uh, of geography. I live in Rexburg, Idaho, and have been here for about 22 years, and... Uh, just have great memories of, of growing up with John. And as Andy was on last time, we, you know, movies and uh, specifically kind of eighties movies are a big part of us growing up and music. And, and so it's fun and, and you guys do a great job with your podcast. So um, it's an honor to appear. Mike, did you happen to listen to our podcast where we talked about road to Morocco with Bob Hope and Dean Crosby? Yeah, I heard part of that. I don't think I heard that whole episode, but I did hear some of your discussion of that movie. Yep. So I don't know if you heard the part where I said, I've seen one other Bob Hope movie. and I <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew what you were referring to, The Princess and the Pirate. Yes, which yes. I think is one of the best movies ever. <laughs> That's <laughs> one that, that only you and I have seen. Like, <laughs> no, I think. it's so good. It, yeah. I, I love that film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> All right. yeah, we'll have to do that next time. Yeah. Well, Mike, you brought with you, because this is your first time, so it's the it's three movies. You get to pick them, movies that are important to you, mm-hmm. and you brought with you Victory, which mm-hmm. I wholly endorse. Any Sylvester Stallone movie is welcome <laughs> on this podcast. We're almost done with all of them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and then you brought The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and we did all agree to watch the extended edition. And for those of you who see the runtime and start freaking out, the last half hour is literally the credits, so you can just chop a half hour off of your expected time. <laughs> 
unless you're like John. I know John likes to sit through the whole credits. Did you sit through and watch like 20 minutes of just the screen filled with names? I'll be honest. I let the TV run until it stopped going because <laughs> of my yeah of my thing with my thing with credit so i did you know i may have made some food i came back and i checked on things i'm like yeah they're still going they're still going at one point at like i think it had like all the patreon people who were involved and that was like (laughs) you know that was like 12 minutes of credits or something and so i think if you read lord of the rings your name was in the credits (laughs) (laughs) i should have watched for my name (laughs) you brought a movie that none of us had ever heard of or seen and that's tel aviv on fire so very Three very different films. Yeah. It'll be exciting to talk about them. Yeah, I'm very happy with it. I, I kind of got nervous. You know, as John mentioned in a previous podcast, like six months ago, we we talked about the possibility of me appearing, what I would choose. And and Victory is one I mentioned because I, I really loved that from when I was a teenager, but hadn't seen it in a long time. But then after I was officially on and made my selections, I thought, oh, I hope I chose well. But I'll be curious to get your reaction and responses. But I was really pleased. I was very happy. And as you said, they're all very different I realized when I was going through the awards and like the you know funniest moments, I like comedies. I love a good comedy. And I chose some pretty heavy films. Even the, the, <laughs> the quote unquote comedy is a pretty heavy uh, comedy. So I love comedies, but, but these, I, I, I like these films a lot for different reasons. So I'm excited to talk about them. I don't want to ruin our future business, which is coming up, but you will get your comedies. Oh, good. <laughs> I think that's about all we have. Uh, the, the, so we're, we should have a whole bunch of comedies in two weeks. Yeah. So, all right. Well, unless you guys have anything you would like to discuss beforehand, John, I think victory is all yours. Victory or escape to victory. Yes. I don't know. It, it, mm. I don't know if we're going to talk about that at all. I, mm-hmm. Like in some places online say that this movie is called escape to victory. It didn't say that in the credits and the opening credits and closing credits or anything. I don't think it lists that on IMDb, but I think it lists it that way in letterboxd and stuff like that. Yeah. My understanding is in some countries it was released as escape to victory. And I thought that was interesting. I'm not crazy about that title, but uh, I'm I'm not crazy. I mean, I think the title makes sense. I mean, it's kind of, interesting but it also i mean victory is just so good just yeah. if they're gonna call it escape to victory then victory needs to be like a little town where the soccer match is held or something <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. the thing is this is world war ii uh it this is. is a concentration camp it's um a camp of mostly british people is this the most chill concentration camp that germany was running i mean like you get you get to play soccer i, I don't know the one in hogan's heroes seems to seem to get away with a lot of stuff <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're playing soccer all the time, and I I thought it was weird that Sylvester Stallone is the only American there. Yeah, is technically Canadian. Yeah. Oh right, it, it, I mean, because is he one of those people who kind of like, kind of joint like, is this 1940? That's what I was wondering if maybe yeah. it's early enough in the war that there aren't any Americans serving, but he went to Canada to to get into the war. To get into the <laughs> war. He's, <laughs> I, he's I, like, I'm Sylvester Stallone. I'm in the 40s. I have to start my Sylvester Stallone-ness. Yeah. Right. Give me a country to explode. Paris is already occupied. I don't know what that does as far as mm. 
the timing of this film. And also at one point, uh, Max von Steiner says, you know, the war is coming to an end. Mm. But, but he said the That's war is coming to an end with the impression that the, you know, the Germans are obviously going to win this war. So I don't really know when yeah. this is supposed to take place. I think Americans would have been involved. But for some reason, you're right, John, this camp seems to be comprised of Brits and, and those in the British Commonwealth. So Canada, Pele, of course, is from, he's really from Brazil, but he says Trinidad. So a, a British yeah. possession that would explain why he would be there. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder, is it possible that the Germans in some kind of like, okay, welcome to hell, American, we're going to put you in this camp where they play soccer all the time, (laughs) something you hate and something that's going to foil your very existence. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. Let me talk about the opening because I was going to ask about this is the opening. It starts with a guy trying to escape, Mm. uh, but he didn't count on night barbed wire. He just kind of the wall of barbed wire. He walks right into just walks into barbed wire. It's like a spider web of barbed wire. (laughs) Anyway, you think the barbed wire gets him? The Germans don't think so. They're like, he can get away at any moment. So uh, they machine gun this guy down, this helpless guy, poor guy. And I think I don't, I'm not sure who it is because I, it's like the international, Geneva Convention or somebody says, you know, we're going to do an investigation. Yeah. I think on, the Red Cross. Yeah. Oh, the Red Cross. And uh, and they're like, you know, the, the camp people are like, all right, do your investigation. We're Nazis. What do you want? You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> you expect, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this, this is the background. So in the meantime, uh, the other Brits, there's like a hut, like the, the British guy in charge is also in charge of escapes. Uh, so he has people take applications for the best method of escaping the camp uh, because, and I don't know how true this is. I think it's in this movie or I heard it in this movie where they said it's the duty of every British officer to attempt to escape. Like that's part of your, which I, I think that makes sense. It's kind of interesting. It's like the duty of the British officer so that's still the case. So when I was in the old Air Force, you have the the law of armed conflict and the code of conduct. And uh, if you're captured, it's your duty to escape if possible. Wow. Oh, I thought it might just be a movie thing. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not like one of those things because I kind of thought it was it would be one of those things where they specifically don't say they're like, OK, stay put. Don't cause a ruckus. Kind of like stopping mm-hmm. a bank robber kind of thing. Don't be a hero. <laughs> You don't want to do that. And that would kind of make sense, yeah, that you're, okay, you're captured, but you can still kind of do your part by keeping your people uh, watching over you engaged. Like, don't make it too easy for them. Have forced them to use as many resources as they can, keeping you in this camp, uh, so you're still kind of doing your part for the war. Oh, right. So, okay. So, it, it's it's more, it's almost like mind games. It's like, okay, you have to put good guards on us, which kind of mm-hmm. comes into point later. Like, those those guards... They can't be off fighting in the front because they have to use those resources. Okay. Okay. No, that makes sense. Sylvester Stallone has this um, really excellent plan that involves certain guards that do certain paces and he kind of has logged their sloppiness and he's done all this. um, So he knows exactly how to escape. And it's just a straightforward way of escaping. No frills. He's really good at it. He's Canadian. Um, (laughs) In the meantime, Ming the Merciless comes and visits. And uh, this guy, I, I may as well say it right now. Two weeks ago when we talked about Jojo Rabbit, I mentioned you're not going to see in movies a kind, nice Nazi. 
But Max von Sydow is pretty. He's right up yeah. there. He's kind of he's he's kind of a cool Nazi, <laughs> right? He's he's like the coolest coolest Nazi. And you know, and I'm glad we talked about like when this appears in the war because like one thing about him is okay in my headcanon, uh, you know, he's not he didn't join the Nazi party, but he mm-hmm. was a soccer player and he was in the German military mm-hmm. and. Some of the stuff he talks about, he's like, the war should be over soon. And he doesn't say whether they're going to win or lose, but he mm-hmm. does say we do have to get along and we have to live with each other. And so we should try to understand each other, which um, is one of the least Nazi things ever said. Yeah. Anybody, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of think he's he's kind of Nazi default and doesn't really believe the ideology of Nazism because yeah. he was just in the military well, anyway. And a spoiler for this film, at the very end when victory occurs and all the Nazis are freaking out, he kind of gives a little bit of a grin, right? Yeah. 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 He, he's smiling as he sees them escape. And I had the same thought, John. In your discussion of uh, previously of Jojo Rabbit, I, I love how that's kind of been a theme on the last few podcasts of kind of this, you know, the othering there uh, of people. We, we love and, Nazis on this podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, That's a common theme, I think, in, among people is, is anytime you other someone and kind of categorize them and, and characterize them a certain way, then there's problems there. And, and, and Max von Sydow, I, I really like his character a lot. I think it is a great job as an actor, but that's the kind of the impression I get. There's a difference between, you know, a Nazi and a German military officer. He's likely been in the German military for a while. He's a person of, of honor and respects other people and, and likely not a Nazi, like Nazi ideology is, is evil. Like, you know, we throw that word around a lot, but it was so just horrible and dehumanizing and, and just um, a terrible thing. But there were, you know, plenty of Germans that just kind of got caught up in this. Some of the, the most heroic Germans, you know, actively fought against it. There were Germans who lost their lives, you know, opposing Nazism and some who tried to, uh, to take out Hitler and, and got executed for it. So, so I, I, I've heard you use this quote before on this podcast, but the famous Simpsons line, uh, someone who speaks German can't be bad, uh, because not, you know, it's Most some, Germans, <laughs> some Germans have done horrific things. But Max von Sydow, I love he's just a man of honor and, um, and fair play. And, and Max von Sydow plays this character so well. And, and I just appreciate that. Again, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 you, it demonstrates his humanity and, and uh, that, yeah, he's he's a German, but he's not necessarily a Nazi or sympathetic to Nazi ideology. So, John, when he arrives at the camp, he sees them playing ragamuffin soccer. I think he's ready to take it, take it to, to level, level five. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was born for that role. Uh, yes, the Strange Brew is is a classic. By the way, I'm going to talk a lot about Max von Sydow later in the podcast uh-huh. because he was born for every role. <laughs> uh, okay, the, here's here's another theory about why World War II happened and why Germany is so, you know, they captured all these, you know, people. It's a mostly British camp and, you know, they were trying to take on the world. And the answer comes because, according to this movie, Germany has not defeated England in soccer. Mm. <laughs> That's why they started World War II. Yes, that tracks. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's that is a plot point because Max von Sydow he's a uh, really big into soccer, kind of like many of the other you know British guys uh, who were in the camp. They are apparently you know they were on like British and and well, uh, and I don't I don't know 
the movie doesn't do a good job of explaining where every individual person is because you know at the end of the movie it says you know they're where they're all really from and you know there are a lot of you know south americans and everything and i'm not sure it calls stallone an american in the end credits yeah it, it well yeah and it calls pele brazilian in the end credits yeah. oh um because yeah because it was like the end credits were more like real life like these yeah. are real soccer well, players these yeah were because, yeah they were all real soccer players i think yeah. they were trying to like say hey you know these guys here they are i haven't gotten to the soccer all Sorry. the soccer games yet but i <laughs> I, I don't want to forget to mention, you know, forgetting all of these professional soccer players, the soccer games, it kind of was filmed like, you know, elementary school soccer where everyone's just around the ball kicking. <laughs> <laughs> not, I didn't see a lot of super great fundamentals filmed. Anyway, there were a lot of some, there were some great trick kicks and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. But, uh, you know, if I do have a complaint about this movie, I think, I think some sweeter looking soccer would have been pretty good. <laughs> Okay, so the thing is, Max von Sydow, he's like, you know what? Morale is really lousy on both sides of this. Mm-hmm. And and I think his his means are good. He's like, you know, I think it would be great. We conquered France. And I think everybody would be happy if in a show of good faith, we had a soccer game where you guys played some of us and it'll be really cool. And, it, okay, you know what? Very naive of Max von Sydow because all of his superiors are like, okay, well, we're going to fix this. Yeah. We're going to make. We're going to buy the refs. I mean, or I don't know if you have to really buy a ref. I mean, you could just order them. <laughs> yes. I mean, you're a Nazi. <laughs> and also on the other side, the British people like this is a setup. You know, they're yeah. they're setting us up to like have to you know show us all up and to say you know to prove their superiority and they're certainly going to win and everything's going to happen. And Max von Sydow is kind of the only person in the entire movie. <laughs> who feels like it's really a good idea. And uh, by the way, Max von Sydow, it, it wasn't a good idea. Like, <laughs> it was not a good idea, but okay. But it turns into a good idea for the good guys, of course. In the meantime, Sylvester Stallone, he gets all his papers, he gets all, everything ready to escape, and he has everything ready. But since they're having the exhibition game uh, with the Germans, the guards he needs to escape from are now guarding the team because they're the lazy guards. And so in order for him to escape, he has to join the team. So he kind of wills himself to become the goalie because that's the only thing he can do because it's closest to American football. He gets on the team, does figure out a way to escape. They encourage him to escape because they're like, we're going to get these players out. Mm-hmm. Can you help me understand this? He he poses as the team trainer in order to escape because the guards changed and now his his escape plan is ruined. But then... His escape plan is unruined? Uh, I think, yeah, I'm trying to remember what happens. Do the guards get demoted from the soccer pitch back to the shower or something? Um, I think, well, no, I think it makes sense because since he's the trainer, he has the lousy guards. They have to follow him to the shower house? It just seems like there was zero disruption to his original plan. He did his original escape plan. Mm. He did the original escape plan, I think, because his shower time or whatever um, was with the team. If he wasn't Mm. with the team, then he wouldn't Uh have the right guards. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. So he gets away and they're like, okay, well, uh, if you're going to, we're going to support you getting away, but you also, you have to go to Paris. You can't go to Switzerland or wherever you're going to go. And it's like, why is Mm -hmm. that? It's like, you have to contact the resistance because you have to make, you know, the arrangements for the escape of the team. And he's like, I hate this team. They're screwing everything up. And I love how often the team screws up Sylvester Stallone's plans. Um, he goes and he meets a beautiful woman, and uh, and but she's taken. 
and yeah, she's he's he's dating, dating Francois. <laughs> yes, she, she's. Was that the name of her son? Yes. 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 Uh, well, you know, so French is <laughs> very French. Uh, and so then the French Resistance says, and this is the ultimate kicker. It's like, okay, thanks for providing this, but they're not going to know how to escape. They don't have the information we're giving you right now. So you have to get captured again and go back to the same camp he's like they could just put me in another camp they're like they won't do that because they want to make an example of you they want to show that people can't escape fortunately for him they didn't just take him back to camp and execute him in front of everybody (laughs) yes Uh, it's crazy that not only did they not execute him but they still let him travel with the soccer team it's very crazy in a very crazy way and so once he gets back he's in solitary but he's able to kind of uh communicate with them a little bit and they figure out what they need to do it's like okay the big game is going to be in paris they can get us out they can do this and they have everything they're like okay well hatch needs to come with us so he can do the right signals with resistance and everything and so max von Sydow is like well hatch isn't going with you and they're like no no he's going with us uh He's the trainer. Well, you can get another trainer. Well, he's the goalie. <laughs> and so they say, okay, well, what happened to your other goalie? Oh, he broke his arm this morning. He's like, okay, get a doctor's note. And they're like, ooh. Uh, and so that you poor can get goalie. The, the, uh, the goalie who was going to escape World War II, he's going to escape Germany, he's going to escape the camp. They're like, okay, not only are you not escaping, with us, but we have to snap your arm off right now. <laughs> so they snap his arm. Uh, Sylvester Stallone goes with him. And the big game happens. And as expected, uh, the Germans, they practice blitzkrieg right there on the field. <laughs> and uh, they're pushing, they're shoving, they're doing, they're, they're fighting dirty. But it's, and it's 4-1 going into mm-hmm. half, which is, mm-hmm. it may as well be 40 to 1, right? I mean, that's yeah. still a huge number. Yeah. But, you know, the, the allies, they score like toward the end and uh halftime is when they're supposed to escape out the sewers that the french resistance is and they blow the sewer they get everybody down there they're all down in the sewer when they change their minds and say hey i think we can let's let's win let's let's do this by the way that's the stupidest decision in the history of stupid decisions (laughs) it's so crazy it's like ah no don't do that stop finishing the game and then going back to the concentration camp, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I have to. I have to comment on this because I remembered that from years ago and, and that moment. And I thought, how will this? How will I interpret this movie and that scene in particular differently now that I have a fully formed prefrontal cortex? You know, I'm middle aged. I have, and so I'm going to look. And I, I anticipated kind of thinking that, like, well, yeah, why would you do that? I remember as a 15 year old watching this movie and just gallons of testosterone coursing through my veins. It's like, well, of course you're going to go out and finish the match. Of course, there's a <laughs> soccer game to win here. You're not going to, who cares if you can escape? Who scare, cares if the French resistance risk their lives uh, to get you out of there? You you have a chance and you scored a goal. And But now going back to middle age, I still had the same reaction. Like, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course you're going to go back up there. But it did make, you. D- I did appreciate much more the risk they're taking and really how foolish that was to, to because as you pointed out earlier, they're just, they're being used as propaganda. They're, they're being used to uphold Germany and, and the, the British are unhappy that they're being used as tools and pawns this way. The only way they can save face is to escape. So they have this elaborate escape plan. Rocky, uh, Sebastian gets, gets, you know, captured twice to make sure this can happen. <laughs> and, uh, and so they've got their escape and that would have, that would have kind of been a victory because now, yeah, you're, you're not just being used by the Germans. You're uh, making them look bad because now you've escaped, but 
there was a soccer game to win. Uh, and and I just, I still love that. What a great moment. When <laughs> like, Let's go back up. Let's finish this match. I appreciate the moment. I still feel like any excuse to get out of just playing a soccer game, I'm going to take that. I mean, you ever play soccer? It, it sucks. It's like, a lot of running. It's a lot of running. So so in the first half, Pele gets taken out by the Nazis, right? They blitzkrieg him. Yeah. In the second half, he comes back. But John, they play dirty. And I'm pretty sure they're trying to punch his heart to death. They do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he punched his heart. His heart stopped several times. <laughs> uh, but when it buzzed back in, that's when he does a, does a bicycle kick. Um, oh. Now, I... By the way, we've given away tons of the movie, but if you've never seen Victory, <laughs> if you've never seen Victory, I don't know what you're doing. Don't listen to us anymore because this is very important. Stop listening to it right yes. now. Yeah, just watch Victory. It it is it is really great because uh, they do come out and they force Sylvester Stallone to come out, which is like it should be the last straw. Can you? Okay, first of all, can you imagine um, what would have happened if uh, they? <laughs> went out they played the game they lost the game and they all went back to the concentration camp just how much just the birth of john rambo just destroying an entire camp <laughs> for the next few nights uh and just how the horror awkward that uh, that bus ride is back to the camp yeah that would have been yeah, kind of uh that, awkward that been, oh, <laughs> oh boy okay so the thing is they they tie the game and we're into penalty kicks and Sylvester Stallone saves the penalty. And I'm at this point, I wasn't sure was the game over and it was in a tie or yeah. okay, it, it just yeah. was over. And so it, yeah. it ends in a tie. It's, so it's a Rocky movie. It's another Rocky yeah. movie. A tie is a win. And it's definitely a Rocky movie because the music playing during the second half of the soccer game is straight out of a Rocky fight. Yeah. Music, music by Bill Conti. Yeah. yeah. Same guy. Yeah, and, and there were. I'm sure we all were seeing the same thing. Like these influences of Rocky. You know, Sylvester Stallone is is pretty popular. Rocky and Rocky was a few years earlier, right? I yeah. don't think we have Rocky two yet, or or maybe we have because um, the cast in this movie hated him because he wouldn't hang out with the cast, and they thought that he was being snobbish. But actually, he was spending every spare moment writing Rocky three. Oh, there you go. So as you can see, kind of these influences in there. I was fully expecting. I forgot this from the movie, but on that that critical kick when it's just the the two of them facing off and and Rocky steps out to come face to face with the German soccer player I was just waiting for you know the German soccer player to say I must break you and Rocky <laughs> yes. that's that's Rocky like they're just squaring off uh like in a boxing ring but it's the yeah. the goalie and the <laughs> the free kick yeah that that happened. <laughs> also the, the I must break you happened in return of the king I put that in my notes that I put, I think Hutch must break him. So, so Sylvester Stallone lost 40 pounds for this role. Wow. Which is so much weight to lose. But he said, you know, how can I look like a heavyweight boxing champion if I'm in a concentration? Right. Yeah. So Hmm. that's interesting. That's, that's commitment. They escaped. Did we get to that part? They victoried Uh, and escaped it. Okay. That's the thing. When the tie happens. And as we know, in soccer ties are, the most riotous, exciting thing that could ever happen. <laughs> uh, the entire French populace shouting victoire. Mm. Uh, they yeah. uh, mow down the uh, the fences. They mow past all of the German guards. They swarm the field, just like any, just like American football, where you swarm <laughs> the field. And uh, they all um, take off their, uh, their like, uh, 
70s lapels and bell bottoms. And, <laughs> I had a comment on that later, yeah. <laughs> and and they uh, adorn the team. You know, normally soccer teams during victory, they take off their jerseys. But in this case, their jerseys <laughs> are put on by the crowd. So now they're just harmless Frenchmen. And uh, they just easily escape with the crowd, which is – so it's double victory. So yeah. best of everything. And so I love the end of this movie. But, uh, boy, in real life, if it doesn't go that swimmingly well, <laughs> it would be the worst ending to anything. So, victoire. Do you love how it um, it fades to, like, a negative blue? Like, that's yeah. the end of the movie. It just goes to freeze frame negative blue. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, is such an odd choice. It, it, yeah. it is. I wonder. Okay. I could be wrong about this. And I didn't research this. But I think... The red, white, and blue the, of the French flag. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think each of those means something. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, and I think the French uh, uh, national team usually wears blue. Dale can confirm that. Not that, but I wondered if it had to do something with kind of French nationalism or something like that. With I, the, I thought the maybe it was like love, freedom, victory mm-hmm. kind of thing. You yeah, know? no, it's like egalita. I, I can't remember what the. Yeah, fraternity. Yeah, yeah some, something like that. Whatever. I thought I could look it up real quick, but I can't. Uh, so I will tell you it's cornflowers, uh, margaritas, and poppies, whatever that means. So. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hey, this movie has maybe the second most rousing singing of La Marseille. Wow. Uh, in in any film, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, when the crowd I, gets I, yeah I love that. The one of my favorite scenes, and, and one thing I hadn't remembered from before is at the beginning of the match, or when they're talking about the match, the Germans are kind of asking who is the home team, and of course they decide well, we're the home team. We're we're Germany, and we took over France, so we're the home team. So the the whole French crowd, uh, and and I, again I just love the setup. I, I love the emotion behind this because the French have been occupied. You know the. The Nazi occupation, uh, the German occupation of Paris was like four years. That's a long time yeah. to be occupied by your enemies. And and the, the the French, like, again, there's a lot of stereotypes about French military prowess or lack thereof. But spending time in France, like, you get kind of patriotic. They do have a proud military history. There's, I think it's the Simpsons where there's an international school, a food fight breaks out, and there's the French table. They're all sitting with their berets, and like a little roll lands on there, and they all raise their hands, I surrender. Um, yeah, we surrender. So there's that stereotype, uh, and they got beaten you know, pretty soundly and quickly in World War II. But, but it was you know, a devastating loss, and there were many you know, French units that fought very bravely and held out. And so it was just humiliating uh, to be occupied by the Germans. And so now there's this opportunity. You know, They kind of come with a little bit of hope. Here's a diversion. We can cheer on the allies against the German national team. We know that it's probably going to be a bloodbath and it's all for propaganda, but man, we hate the Germans and they've, they've occupied us now for four years and just to rub their faces in it, they play the German national anthem at the beginning of the match and they just got to sit there and take it. And so I love that scene when at the end, when the time has run out, they just are singing the French national anthem and man, it makes me patriotic for France. And, and that's a great, moment i love that as they're able to kind of give vent to some of their emotions and yeah it's a sporting event but but those emotions are real and raw and it's a it's a great movie moment so the french have one of the very best national anthems there yeah. uh right up there with the russian national anthem which is, yeah oh the russian's great yeah. the russian is great yeah ours is pretty good but man i love the french national anthem it sounds yeah. wonderful so uh, uh, maybe write that down as a a category we could do other national anthems sung in movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
Victory, huh? Victory, yeah. Uh, do we have any questions? I do. Uh, like, which of the other people in the concentration camp was Stallone's hairdresser? Because his hair always looks perfect. <laughs> well, I there were probably f- a few French guys there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but if 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 not that, then there are a lot of British salon people. Right, that's true. And the officers' club, like it seemed like they. It just, I don't know. It felt like, not, I mean, they're in a, a prisoner camp, whatever, but it seems like the officers had it pretty good mm-hmm. in the camp and they could just hang out in there, make plans to escape hut. So that's pretty good. It's weird to me that unless Stallone had only been at that concentration camp or labor camp for like a week, it seems like he's been playing soccer for a while and he keeps tackling people. He still can't play. Yeah. Still, <laughs> yeah. That's a hard time. <laughs> they keep <laughs> saying football. He wasn't getting past the football aspect. The football. <laughs> no one explained that, no, this is actually soccer. We're just saying football. And he's he's wondering why no one else is tackling anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, there's a moment like when he realizes he has to get captured again. And I think he says, friggin' soccer. <laughs> this friggin' game is ruining yeah. my life. Yeah. <laughs> man, oh, man, I love Stallone so much. So... Uh, on my other crazy podcast, we just talked about Norman Jewison, who did a lot of really good movies and then also did Fist. Okay. And I think this is just kind of during that golden, that imperial age for Stallone, where after the first two Rockies, he could just do whatever he wanted, right? right? However he wanted, yeah. Yeah, and so Fist was awful, and then he, <laughs> he finds himself in Victory. And Victory, um, not like a huge critical success, but it has... It's a it's a great movie, and it well, maybe one better Sylvester Stallone movie than Victory. Uh, name you one better? Yeah. Anything? Okay. Any any one better? Yeah. Okay. Well, so I, I I think it'd be easier to name the ones that are worse. John, <laughs> you John, I don't know why you want to pick this fight. Almost all the Rockies are better than Victory. <laughs> In fact, all the Rockies that I recognize are better than Victory. <laughs> you recognize? I guess I guess that's a thing you say. That's Maybe you would like Rocky more if there was more soccer in it. I would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Get a get a, get a soccer. I I well as I mentioned, I don't like soccer, but I I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate movies about soccer. So it's interesting. Uh, World be- War Two ones. I think because of this film. Sylvester Stallone became a big uh, English Premier League soccer fan, and uh, specifically, he loves Everton. Oh, interesting! Uh, Which so is why. So that's good. He's not like a Manchester United sellout. <laughs> no, and actually, it hurts to be an Everton fan because they're always decent, but they're never good. And, but and uh, they're, they're in Liverpool, so they always play against Liverpool, and Liverpool's better. But uh, if you watched the movie Creed, the final match takes place. At good is it Goodison Park? Is that what Everton's soccer stadium is called? It takes place in Everton's soccer stadium because oh, Stallone loves Everton. Stallone so. loves it. Okay, that's interesting. And th- that's the first Creed that he did that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess he's not in the other ones, right? He's that's the one he's in. He's in the second one, but not the third one. Okay. Have you not seen the Creed movies? I've seen no. I've seen one and two. Oh, hmm. okay. Of course, he's in the second one because he has to have that diner scene with Drago. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. No, I haven't <laughs> seen the third one. I hear it's weird. It's weird. Okay. Uh, so no more questions. Yeah, I've got just a quick comment. I again, I, I really like this movie. Uh, it, it was happy to revisit it and and kind of curious how I would respond to it. That and it's it's hard for me to kind of find times to watch movies. I don't I don't do that very often. Kind of just a crazy 
hectic life. So I was grateful for this opportunity because now I needed to do this for the podcast. And it was so fun. On this particular night, it was a Friday night. I rented it from Amazon and my 14-year-old daughter happened to be there. Uh, and my 22-year-old son was home from college for a ski trip. And, and so the three of us watched it. And I was curious how they would like it. And they really liked it. It just it just holds up very well. It's a great film. And I you know on Rotten Tomatoes, it's like 66%. Like, who are these people? Like, what's not to like? <laughs> this is a great film. And, and, and it was neat to see kind of a different generation have that exposure to it. And for them to appreciate it, they, they responded a lot like I did when I was their age and I saw it for the first time. Uh, and I like it. It's kind of, you know, just kind of a slower pace. Just the pace of the film is a little bit different. And and then I just, you know, I've already said Max von Sydow. I just really like his character. And it, it just reminded me of an account from World War II. Again, the, the Germans had occupied Paris for so long. And and as they're retreating, you know, as the as the Allies are coming in and retaking France. Uh, and, and one of you, either of you may know this. I, I can't remember the names. I don't know if I have the story exactly right. But I believe that the, the German officer in charge of Paris was ordered by Hitler to burn it, like raise it, like don't, don't just destroy it on your way out. Cause yeah, we have to retreat. And he just refused, like he wouldn't do it. And, mm-hmm. and so just another example of kind of that decency as far as, you know, Germans can go and, and a lot uh, of stuff, but I'm not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to burn Paris, yeah. but, uh, but Max von Sydow, just, just a good character. He played it so well. And I do love that scene where, well, that, that is a great moment when he stands and applauds, of course, Pele's goal. And as he, sees the the uh, prisoners escaping and rather than you know saying shoot them he's just like all right okay <laughs> good for you guys <laughs> he's yeah. like I, I think he was kind of like this, no this is this is good <laughs> the the backups back at camp will be able to beat them all the good guys are gone yeah. uh okay i do i don't have a question but i do have a comment and it's a very important comment because i don't think it's been brought up but michael kane is very much in this movie that's true. Yeah, and he's very and... Michael Caney in the best way, <laughs> Michael Caney. <laughs> and he's he's actually starring in the movie. He's like second build behind Stallone, and he's kind of the main character. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. I didn't mention him in the summary, and so I just want to send out my apologies to Michael Caine because he deserves it. Yeah. Uh, Roy, before we move on to the next one, don't forget uh, we do uh, taglines. Oh, yeah. Did I come up with them? Okay. Okay. Well, uh, John, what is your alternate tagline for victory? Alternate tagline for victory is victory for all you weirdos who think soccer is more important than real life. (laughs) All right, Mike, what about you? Yeah, my alternate tagline is what do you get when you combine the great escape Rocky, Lamas, or Robin Hoosiers? You get victory. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, my tagline is friggin' football. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Lord of the Rings, you guys ready? Oh, I'm ready. Mike, you made a statement that you rarely have time to watch movies. (laughs) And then you decided we should watch almost five hours of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it was. And it was a miracle. I did it. And so over the course of a few days and uh, just grabbing moments here and there, the actual, you know, literal DVD and the DVD player of the extended edition, both of them, because it takes two. And uh, just whenever I had a chance. And that was great as well. I, I realized I may not get a chance to watch this, and I'd watched it a few months ago, again with my son, who had told me, you've been telling me for 10 years, we'll sit down and watch the extended edition, and we finally made time. This was like during the summer. So I'd seen it recently and thought, you know, I, I'll rely on that if I need to, but I really wanted to have it fresh in my mind. So I pulled it off. It took several nights, and uh, but it was fun to just, whoever was around, get a 30 minutes in here, <laughs> an hour there, 45 minutes there, <laughs> over the course of several days, I was able to see it. 
All right. Well, I'm going to sum this up in I'm going to there's two main storylines and I'm going to do one at a time and to a point. So uh we're so anyway, if you've watched The Fellowship of the Ring and then The Two Towers, this is right after The Two Towers, Saruman, he's the he's the bad wizard, right? Saruman, <laughs> right? Yeah. He's been defeated. They won the Battle of Helm's Deep. And uh, so Saruman, at the very beginning of this film, they confront him and, uh, you know, he falls off the tower and dies, which is not what happens in the book. But that's fine. I'm not going to do that nitpicky stuff. The point is, is our friends Frodo and Sam and Gollum are on their way to destroy the ring in Mordor. I think at the end of Two Towers, they had made it to the front of the Black Gate and they were like, well, there's no way this is going to work. So they're heading to the back way. And so I'm just going to talk about their little story first. So at the end of Two Towers, there's a point in the Two Towers where Gollum has kind of become good because Frodo has shown him compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a turning point in that film where where Gollum and Smeagol, the two kind of competing identities, argue with each other and Gollum wins over. And so in this film, all he wants to do is get the ring back so he's plotting. And Sam is kind of wise with plotting. So they're traveling towards the stairs. They get to the stairs. This whole time, Sam knows that something's up. Um, but Frodo, who's deeply influenced by the ring, can't see it. And at one point, you have Gollum who turns Frodo against Sam. He tells him that, you know, Sam will try to take the ring from you. And then he also frames him for eating all the food. Mm-hmm. Uh, when instead, he just threw the food away, right? Also, they're climbing up stairs that are basically like a ladder. And at one point, they sleep on like a half a square foot of a ledge. And that that kind of freaked me out. Anyway. I don't like that at all. Yeah, it's, no, it's not good. Um, but Frodo kicks Sam out of the team. He says, uh, you stole all the food and uh, you got to go. Now so, for the easiest part of this journey, the cuts. You're cut. You're cut, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) So Sam starts walking down the stairs crying. But what does he find? He finds all the Lembus bread that Smeagol had thrown away. And I guess he realizes, even though he already knew that Gollum was going to try to kill Frodo. But, you know, he gets his courage back and he's running back upstairs just in time to find that Gollum had tricked Frodo into the spider lair. And the spider's got a name, Shelob. Shelob, yeah. Shelob, yeah, let's go with that. And Frodo gets kind of turned around in the the tunnels there. And at one point, I think he must jump up into a spider web because he's suspended off the floor. (laughs) And I don't know how he got like two feet off the floor in the spider web unless he jumped up into it. Like like David Letterman style, right? (laughs) (laughs) With the Velcro suit, yeah. Yeah, the Velcro suit. He gets out of that. He looks like he might get away, but... Uh, Shelob stabs him, and I don't understand how the Mithril didn't protect him when the Mithril was able to defend him from an ogre stabbing him with a giant spear. Mm. Yeah, good question. Oh, uh, yeah, because he was wearing the Mithril at that time. Maybe it was kind of high because it's like a kind of a loose fitting tunic, kind of wearing it off the shoulder a little bit, just being stylish. (laughs) So it was like midriff exposed, (laughs) maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, Also, I should mention that when there's a weird moment where Frodo tells Gollum, hey, by the way, I have to destroy the ring for both of us. But didn't Gollum know the whole time that was the plan? What did he think they were doing on their way to Mordor? 
he had to know they were going to go destroy it, but but he gets he goes crazy because I I guess this is where he realizes that the ring's going to get destroyed. Yeah. I anyway, guess, no, he's like these people are on a quest. Maybe uh, to give the know. ring back to Sauron. Yeah, to give or to yeah, Mike. Did, uh, you, no, that's a good you question. Actually read the books, right? So yeah, maybe. yeah, and it seems like he knew, and and so why he would kind of overreact at that point. But his whole point and purpose, of course, is that there'll be an opportunity at some point. Like I'm gonna, yeah. I play my cards right, uh, I'll get the ring. But so I, think, he's I think you're right. okay so anyway i am i'm shocked when i watch this movie especially since it's it's a it's it's, let's see 2003 Mm -hmm. holy cow this movie is 21 years old i can't believe that but the cgi on Gollum is pretty darn good like the detail on his facial features is pretty amazing anyway the spider does get frodo he's wrapping him up getting ready to eat him but sam shows up saves the day uh, the spider gets stabbed. I don't think killed, but it scurries off. Mm-hmm. Frodo gets captured by the goblins and the orcs, and they steal all of his gear. But Sam defeats them too. I guess if you're motivated enough, a little hobbit can kill like four or five <laughs> goblins and orcs. So he does. That's good- kind of one of the things about these movies that uh, well, I guess I guess hobbits have grit, but okay. I, hobbits True get away grit. with killing just like a lot of. Like trained fighters. Yeah, they're not like there's a point in this movie where like uh hobbits don't belong in battle, but it seems like they're like deadly they do tiny assassins. Well. Yeah. 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 So anyway, they stare from the tower they're at over to the mountain of doom, and there's just a sea of goblins and orcs between, and they say, There is no way we're making it. How can we possibly make it? And then all of the population of Mordor starts moving. And it starts clearing out the space. And they don't understand why. But that's where we're going to move to the other story. Okay? Okay. So we have all our friends, Gimli and, uh, and uh, you know, Legolas. Gandalf and Aragorn and the elf with the <laughs> Legolas, right? So they've come off of the victory at Helm's Deep. But now it's apparent that the forces of Mordor are coming to destroy Gondor and there's just enormous numbers of them. And so uh, I think they're all with Theoden at this time because again, they just, they just come from Helm's Deep and Theoden basically says, if Gondor asks for help, we will give it. But it seems, I don't want to say that seems pity. Why don't they just go? Why don't, why don't they just go now? But anyway, they're going to wait until they're asked. I was kind of wondering um, about this a little because they they have the big discussion like we don't know where they're going to strike but the books come with a map and <laughs> the map shows these two places kind of right next to each other there's kind of only yeah. one way to go I think Mordor is like two miles away from Gondor and that's it's the funniest a- thing <laughs> like, <laughs> so Gondor like the Minas Tirith city is like the most beautiful white city and it's like Look at this fabulous view of this volcano 50 kilometers away. Like, not even that, like 50 feet away. It's like 50 yeah. feet away. You can just walk so, to that volcano. I'm assuming the distance from Gondor to, to Rivertown is the same as the distance from Rivertown to Mordor. Yeah, that's and, kind of what it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, can Gandalf. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, jump just in. A little bit uh, from the book. So um, so Rohan, and that's a, a really significant time as they're kind of deliberating. And you know, the other question is, why wouldn't they just go? Because obviously Gondor needs help. But 
well, one thing you kind of appreciate from the book that's kind of alluded to in the movie is that, that Rohan's still kind of threatened. Like there are forces coming from lots of different directions. And so Rohan would be kind of exposed and they just survived Helm's Deep. And so if, if Theoden commits his army uh, to go help Gondor, he's basically leaving his, mm-hmm. the rest of his people exposed potentially to invasion from the east and from the north. Uh, so it's a big risk. And Osgiliath, the river town that referred to, and this is something I'd forgotten, but I was trying to refresh with the books. Osgiliath was kind of the main city of Gondor back in the day. Minas Tirith on one side was kind of this sort of fortified city. And then Minas Morgul, where, which is now an evil city, had been a Gondor city as well. And, and Ithilien, kind of the, the other side of the river heading towards Mordor, was really a beautiful place. It was part of Gondor. There were a lot of settlements there, but since Sauron had set up headquarters there, it become very corrupted and very dark and evil place. And so, so you, you've seen Gondor just over the centuries being kind of pushed further and further back. Minas Tirith is now kind of their final. Osgiliath had fallen, but that was the main actual city of Gondor right mm-hmm. there in the middle of the river uh, previously. And one thing, just a little side note, that so many things the movie does amazing, but those the, the Pelennor fields, all that open white space between Minas Tirith and, and Mordor, would actually have been filled with like farms, you know, farmland and uh, lots of lots of roads and little villages and things like that. In the movie, it's just this kind of blank open space. This movie coming out this year, the Lord of the Rings, the battle is the battle for the Rohirrim or something. Ooh. Is that part of canon or is it just like, hey, people liked those Lord of the Ring movies. Let's do another one. I actually have no idea. I didn't even know about that. Uh, and, and I was going to mention is uh, when we talk about this movie that I, I do love the Lord of the Rings. I love the books. I've probably read the series like half a dozen times or more, but I'm not, there's like different levels of Lord of the Rings fandom. Right. And so okay. there are whole communities that get really deep into everything. And, and I totally understand the appeal. Like I could see myself going that direction, but I'm not that direction. So I'm okay. sure some of your listeners like, Oh, come on. But I didn't even know that was coming out. I didn't know anything about that. One of our five listeners might, might have just said that. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, but no, I get it though, Mike, because I'm I'm this way with Star Wars. I mean, I love Star Wars. Yeah, I love Star Wars more than just about anything else in the world. There's a whole different level. But uh, new Star Wars TV shows? Nope, yeah. not yeah. one of them. Yeah, don't care. They're just new TV shows. They're not really. They're not yeah. kind of what I love, you know. And so, so it, 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 yeah. you've got to take the canon, right? Right. And so this movie came out. I'm I'm curious about it now, but. Um, and again, I'm not, I try not to be like a Lord of the Rings snob because, you know, I do love the books, but I, I didn't make it through the Hobbit. I've heard other people say that the, the, the new, the three movies of the Hobbit, I saw the first half of the first one and just gave up because it, it veered so far from the book and I probably should give it a chance and, and get into it more. But, but that's one reason why I like these three, the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, because there are a lot of diversions from the book. Many of them I really understand. And, and, and there are actually, I've got a few points of things. I think the movie uh, exceeds the book and does a better job in the book. And so a really challenging task for the writers and directors to, to, to kind of put on screen what's in the book. And I think they did a really good job of it, all things considered. I have one big grievance I'll get to in the awards, but, um, but for the most part, they, they did a nice job, I thought, putting the books on screen. Can okay. I really quick, sorry, I know you're anxious to, to finish the summary, but I just, you know, some of my thoughts that I find interesting and under this context, I, I yeah, I just, I just want to mention them. Mike, I'm glad you brought up the whole, the, the fields, mm-hmm. like or, Mordor just kind of creeping over. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you say, it's like kind of over centuries. I guess it helps me understand a little bit the attitude of Minas Tirith that 
that it was this nice place, but mm-hmm. like the the darkness that comes from the other land, like took so long that you just kind of get used to it. Sort of like yeah. the um, one of my favorite far sides, where the two cavemen <laughs> walk out of the cave and they just walk into like the sheet of ice that's like three feet away, and one of them says, "Gee, that glacier closer today." <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, what's happening. That, yeah. that, that that captures it very well. <laughs> yeah, yes, they, yeah. for centuries, there's been this growing threat. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, friends, Gandalf and Pippin are in Gondor. They see that the situation is dire. However, the steward, not the king, refuses to ask for help. Uh, And also, I think he refuses to ask for help because he knows that Aragorn is among them and he doesn't want the king to come back and take Mm -hmm. Gondor away from him. And so he's got like five people defending Rivertown and Rivertown gets attacked. And guess what? They don't. Uh, they don't hold off the bad guys, and so they come back to Gondor, and the king's like, uh, my real son, Boromir, would have stayed and won. And so Faramir goes again, and he almost gets killed. We'll get to that. That's a little later. But the point is, is Gandalf and Pippin, they light the fire, and I'm curious how fast message can travel by fire. I think it could probably go pretty darn fast if everyone was attentive. Yeah. It's the same light, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I just going to make, say two things? Sorry, I'm I'm interrupting your summary, but the lighting it's like the you movie. like the Lord of the Rings or something. Go ahead. <laughs> so this is an example of something the movie I think does really well. The lighting of the beacons is mentioned in the book, but it's just mentioned uh, as Pippin and Gandalf are are heading towards Minas Tirith. They notice the beacons have been lit. I love what Peter Jackson does in the movie by having Pippin actually play a role because uh, you know Denethor was re- reluctant, and and that's a great scene. And the lighting, the beacons, the music is incredible. But I put that as one of my goofs because, like, how long does it take? The whole idea is that it's pretty instantaneous. You know, once you see one fire appear on the next peak, they send their fire. So it moves pretty fast. But as you watch the scene, it's like it's light, and then it's dark, and then it's light. And yeah. like, I guess you could have just walked from Minister to give the message, but it took <laughs> that long. It's, it's a great scene. Visually, it's great. But that kind of bothered me. Like, wait a minute. Why is it taking two days for this? Uh, the beacons to make their way to, to Rohan? The good news is Theoden says he's going to answer the call. So he's getting his men ready. They got to gather some folks. And so they gathered their people up and they get ready to go. But Aragorn, Aragorn, is there a two yeah. R's in there? Aragorn? Aragorn. Yeah. He yeah. is going to travel a different path. Let's just take his story real quick. He goes with Gimli and Legolas and he has to go gather up an army of the dead. Mm-hmm. And he's able to do so because... The King of the Elves. I don't remember his name. Agent Smith. Uh, Oh, Elrond. Elrond. Elrond, that's the one. He says, hey, I got this sword. I reforged it, and now it's yours. And with this, you can summon the army of the dead. And so he goes into this really creepy uh, canyon, and he takes him with him, his companions, and they find all the dead and so many skulls. There are seven (laughs) million skulls in that mountain. And the good news is when you have compelled the army of the dead to do your bidding, you know, because they pour 7 million skulls on top of you. (laughs) And so they escape the skull avalanche and they have the army with them just in time because they see like about 15 boats filled with those filthy mercenaries that are going to go and surprise Gondor and, you know, and, you know, make it a not very fair fight. Well, when you got a bunch of dead soldiers, they can take over those boats pretty quick. So they're going to show up in Gondor in a timely manner. Gondor, in the meantime, as they're waiting for Theoden to arrive, they start getting sieged. 
And they should have sent the Army of the Dead to to Minas Tirith first. Mm-hmm. I mean, those yeah. do, those dumb boats were like five <laughs> boats. Whatever. I don't know. Can I jump in again? I'm or sorry. send them to Mordor. Send the dead soldiers to <laughs> Mordor. To Mordor. Yeah, be- so I've got things to say here. So I do have, and I'll come back to the ghosts uh, a little bit later. But one thing, this is a bit of a problem I have with the movie, is is in the movie when uh, Aragorn takes off to take the paths of the dead, he's kind of perceived by everyone around him as like a chicken. Like the writers are around, like, what's he doing? Like he's abandoning us. Oh, yeah, he's, he's smart to leave because we have no hope. And I don't like that because that's not how it plays out in the book. It's, it's kind of understood he's on this errand and he's going somewhere only he can go and to play a critical role in trying to save Gondor. And also it doesn't, this is another thing that kind of bothered me. Well, the skulls, that's not the book. Like that just, I remember in the movie, like what's the deal with all these skulls? Like that, you know, that's a little over the top. We don't yeah. need an avalanche of skulls here. But his, and then when it comes out the other side, so with the boats, that's a great you know point, John. Like what's the deal there? There's so much great, so many great special effects and, and all these CGI. And I'm like, why did they come out and there's like five boats? Because in the book, there's a whole fleet. There's like hundreds and there are thousands of troops coming from the south. This is like kind of the final final nail in the coffin. This will just doom Gondor. And also what it does, and I realize the movie can't cover everything. You've got to chop stuff out. But w- what ends up happening is this uh, siege from these this, this fleet from the south is threatening all of what was most of Gondor. So there are thousands of troops that are basically tied up there because of these, these boats coming in. So it's a lot of boats, a lot of soldiers. The ghost army does help to kind of take care of that. And now not only can Aragorn uh, move north to Minas Tirith, but he brings with him like thousands of soldiers of Gondor who are now able to come to the oh. aid of Minas Tirith as well. So that's how it plays out in the book. So his role there is, is really critical. And another kind of cool thing uh, that, that you might find interesting that's different from the book, and I'd forgotten about this. I was trying to read the book as quick as I could to kind of refresh my memory. But um, in, in the book, the it's not just Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli who take the paths of the dead. You know, Aragorn's often referred to as a ranger of the north. And there's kind of this lost realm up north and, and these descendants of of these uh, you know, people from the West who had set up a kingdom there. Well, prior to him entering the Paths of the Dead, uh, a company shows up of like 20 or so of his cousins, basically, these other rangers of the North, his kinsmen, who've come to join him. And so there's a group of, of you know, Aragorn and his, his relatives, basically. Uh, so people just like Aragorn who take the Paths of the Dead, who defeat the Corsairs, these ships, who rally the troops of Gondor and then bring them uh, to Minas Tirith. So that's kind of a cool See, thing. I, from I really, okay. If, if I, I'm sorry, I know this is taking forever just to get through it, but <laughs> just like the movie. Yeah. yeah um, okay. I, I'll just say just, just if it were up to me and I, I was going to ask you guys this later, but I may as well ask you now, I don't think this movie needs the army of the dead. Like, mm. I don't really think it was a good idea to have something that big. And also that, kind of cartoonish at the same time. It's like, oh, they just wipe through, they just go through here. When when so much of the rest of the movie is grounded. And it would have been really yeah. cool if you if Mike, we had that part where, you know, his kinsmen and they go and they go to the other part of Gondor. Maybe that would that was too similar to bring yeah. the Rohirrim in. Yeah. It's just doing that again. You know, so I, I guess I can kind of see that, but I don't know. I have yeah strong feelings about the ghost army. I think I'll save it for awards because I okay, do want to okay. talk about that. Okay. And cool. yeah. So they were, I mean, they were going to lose that battle 
right? Unless re- reinforcements arrived, would you have yep. preferred, as Mike said, that instead of bringing the army of the dead, it just was all the freed up Gondorians who no longer. I, had I to... think it would have been yeah. better cinematically for this type of movie made when it was. And, you know, when yeah. um, I think it was kind of a, a bridge too far in fantastic. I, it was, it yeah. was kind of Harry Potter. It was, it was veering on Harry Potter land and actually, you know what? It's, it's veering on pirates of the Caribbean land. They, yeah. they went and got a bunch of pirates of the Caribbean. Is what they so did. yeah, I'll go ahead. Cause I had it on my notes to talk about later, but I'll, I'll mention it now. I, I, I'm really happy with the adaptation. I, I love so many things about these films, but that almost made my head explode. It still bothers me to this day okay. because I kind of got the sense that, you know, they made the ghost army and saw how it looked and like, Oh, we got to just keep on using this ghost army. Let's just take this everywhere. And, and I don't like that at all. What happens in the book is he does some of the ghost army. It's kind of cool. This, you know, this, the, these people who have been kind of cursed by Isildur thousands of years ago to not rest because they were oath breakers and they're given a chance. The only one they'll respond to is the actual heir, the, the, the king um, who can summon them. And that's all cool. I'm down with that. And the ghost army plays a role in helping defeat these, this, this huge fleet of ships coming up so that now, and, and once they do that, Aragorn releases them. So he releases them in the movie after all the battles, but, but he, in the book, he lets them go. They've played their part and they're done. And then you bring in, you know, the, the humans and actually march to Minas Tirith. And, and I, I couldn't stand that the ghost army kept making an appearance and they come up and they cleanse, you know, they, they basically destroy all the enemy at Minas Tirith. I, I hated that as a fan of the book because it totally, takes away from the 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 ride of Rohan and the Roharim, which is my favorite scene. Um, the, why, like, if, if the ghosts were coming in a couple of hours, Theoden could have just sat there and said, let's just wait here for the ghost to come. And yeah. so why even do that incredible, majestic charge, this heroic thing to save Minas Tirith, if the ghosts are going to do it anyway in, in a few minutes? And so to me, that totally cheapens what the writers of Rohan did. And, and I just didn't, I, I, I think that, the, that's one of the main criticisms I have is they got carried away with the ghosts and just used them too much and 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 on all over the place, which, which didn't need to be the case. No. Zero stars. No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, now you two shut up so I can finish the summary. <laughs> Taking you so long, Roy, to summarize the <laughs> yeah, on, Can I ask though really quick about the dead? Because the spirits were these disgusting, moldering skeletons. So did, did they... Are their spirits decaying, or did they only become ghosts after they had been moldering, you know, remains for a while? Why would the spirits be like decaying corpses? Yeah, good question. I don't, I don't know the choice made to how. I, don't, I can't remember if they're really described. They, they are just ghosts. Their spirits. They had so when they had died, they just weren't able to. They were just in limbo. They were stuck, uh, regretting the fact that they had broken their oath. And they just have to kind of hang out and terrorize humans for thousands of years until given an opportunity. So the, the choice to kind of make them decaying corpses is, is kind of interesting, like you said. I don't know how how Tolkien envisioned this ghost army in his mind. I suppose okay. it kind of makes sense in the sense that it shows, okay, you know what? They're not just happy being ghosts. Like after a thousand years of being a ghost, it's like they become more miserable as they go. (laughs) Okay. In a minute here, you two, I'm going to discuss elephants the size of blue whales, and I just need you to accept it. And (laughs) we'll just get through it. Okay. So while we're waiting for the ghost army to arrive, Gondor is being sieged and they do break through the lower level of Gondor. And finally, 
failed and arrives, and you can tell he's super outnumbered in body, but not in heart and spirit and in woman power. <laughs> so they charge and they fight a mighty fight, and they're giving it to the the orcs and the goblins. And we have the king of the Nazgul, who I guess is the guy who stabbed Frodo in the chest in the first movie. And he shows up, and apparently he's unkillable, but also his his dragon thing is, is that's a that's the Nazgul, right? Yeah. The dragon is the Nazgul. Right. Gets its head chopped off real good. And then, uh, you know, he gets killed, too. Uh, immediately after saying that no man can kill him, well, he gets killed by a sweet, hot woman. And so... Yeah. Eowyn rips off her helmet and says, I am not a man. And then and then the Witch King says, you're beautiful. That's exactly <laughs> what he says. Yeah. By the way, I have some friends who named their daughter Eowyn after this movie came out. And I remember thinking that was the dumbest thing that anyone had ever done, naming their kid after a, a Lord of the Rings character. Well, but in- now... Up until what? What are you gonna say? I would, gl- I would, I would happily name a daughter Eowyn uh, at this point. I think it's a name, beautiful name. Yeah. Yep. Well, um, oh, I thought you were gonna mention because I know a lot of people who named their daughter Daenerys. Oh. Um, which is, uh, Mike. That's a Lord of the. That's a Game of Thrones thing, and it's oh. weird watching Return of the King just how similar it is to Game of Thrones. Yeah. I didn't even realize it was it was mm. so similar. But uh, the the great thing about Daenerys is that. Uh, she is this heroic person for um, six sevenths of the story, or <laughs> or actually no, pretty much ninety nine one hundredths of the story, and then the very end, she's just kind of like turns out to be a a, a, a rotten person that they have to get rid of. Really, all I didn't these, see the final these, season because I heard it was so awful. All these all these girls are now named Daenerys, just uh-huh. ignorantly. They're like, oh, <laughs> it's it's pretty much like you know their their daughters are named Hitlera. Hitlera. Okay. All right. Hey, so the good guys are looking like they might win this battle, even though they were totally outnumbered. And then the giant elephant army comes. Yeah. And these giant elephants can take out like 30 guys in one swing of How their barbed wire Mad, Mad Max tusks. What? How big are they? They are the size of blue whales. No. They are <laughs> no. They're giant. They're not regular elephant-sized elephants. They're enormous elephants. Nope. So what are you going to do? Theoden's army is, is you know, they're doing their best, but they're kind of getting plowed down. And then, oh, man, how disheartening when the ships show up and the bad guys are going to get even more reinforcements. But it's not. It's ghost army. So <laughs> take that. The ghost army kills a whole lot of the bad guys, but they leave some to our friends Legolas and Gimli, whose competition is ongoing. For killing the most people There's and Legolas, yeah, Legolas actually takes down one of the elephants and Gimli reminds him that it only counts as one. <laughs> um, and that's pretty like when I, I remember seeing this in the theater and that whole sequence of Legolas taking down that elephant was pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah that's a great scene. They yeah. could have seen, they could have had Legolas do that. It wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to see him do that to 10 more after that? <laughs> but also Legolas didn't need to because the army of the dead is there. Yeah, yeah. And they're just sweeping through. So victory, but not for long because Mordor is just chock full of thousands of goblins and orcs that haven't been used yet. And you know they're coming. And so our friends at Gondor, where I think there's only like 15 of them left, like all, all, like all the soldiers except 15 people are dead now. So they don't know what to do and they really can't defeat the power of Mordor on their own. But what can they do? They can stall for Frodo. Mm-hmm. And in one point during the movie, Gandalf's like, 
I think Frodo's still alive. I have this gut feeling. And then later he's like, Frodo's moving beyond my sight. So I don't know which it is. I mean, is he able to track Frodo until he reaches Mordor? And if that's the case, then why did he have to like rely on his gut to tell him whether or not Frodo was still alive? No, I think that's the case. I think he, for a long time, he could just kind of sense it. His heart, his gut was telling him. But then once he's dropped into Mordor, it's just kind of, you know, clouded for him. So he's really not sure. Okay. And he's hopeful, but but not sure. So Aragorn makes the point that if Frodo had failed and the ring was back in the hands of Sauron, everyone would know it. You would just know it by now, right? So yeah. they have to give Frodo a chance. He's... You know, um, Gandalf can no longer sense him, which must mean that he made it at least to Mordor. And so the plot now, the idea is to go give Frodo a chance to stall for him. And I think they know specifically that they have to draw out the army uh, in Mordor so that there's a clear shot for them to make it to Mount Doom. Yeah, and also significantly to, to get the eye's attention. So Sauron is focused on them and then will be less likely to perceive the ring heading to Mount Right, because Aragorn turns on his, his web camera, right? Yeah, and he's like, hey, Sauron, it's me. Here's my sword, and I'm coming for you. So, yeah. Yeah, he sends a TikTok to Sauron. Yeah, they gather the remaining army, which does not include Faramir, or even though, you know, his, his injury doesn't look that bad. Hey, he's got a woman to woo, so. He has a woman to woo. The spurned Eowyn is settling for Faramir, which is fine. Faramir's <laughs> fine. fair. Yeah. Was that hard for her? I mean, how do you compete with hot elves, right? So, um, but I think her and Faramir are going to do just fine. And especially since he doesn't have to go to battle for some reason. So the good guys are off. They get to the Black Gate and the Black Gate opens and they are surrounded by an army and and they bunch up in this circle, which is just awful, right? (laughs) I don't, I don't know who made that decision. I guess the guys in the middle made that decision. I don't know. <laughs> but so here's where we're going to stop, okay? Be, not stop, but so we're going back to Frodo because Frodo and Sam are like, why did everyone leave? Well, we know, we know why. They've been drawn out of the city to fight this last battle against Aragorn and their small army from Gondor. So they actually have a shot. So they're now making their way to the mountain. And it looks like I, the times don't match up great because there's a point where the battle is just about to begin outside the gate. And Sam looks up at where they have to reach at the mountain. And I swear it's like still 10 miles away. But uh, they're fast hikers. It's weird how the Mount Doom gets further and further away the closer you get. Yeah. <laughs> because if you're in Minas Tirith, it's like right there. Yeah. So they're hiking up the mountain. They're making their way. At the same time, the battle has begun. Oh, there's a heartbreaking moment where an emissary comes out and says, hey, we have a present for you. Do you recognize this shirt? And he shows the uh, the armor that Frodo was wearing. Now, and so- I just realized this. They knew the significance that that's Frodo's. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, But... They, uh, he also knows they don't have Frodo. Well, he knows they don't have the ring. They don't know he doesn't have Frodo, but they know he doesn't have the ring. Right. And, that, and that's significant. because And this is it's interesting when you read the books, actually. And, and Peter Jackson talked about this. I, I listened to some of the director's commentary while I was uh, when I went back to review of certain scenes. And he mentioned this challenge with the movie and how they wanted to do this. Because in the book, you read about Aragorn and his people. That's just what you're focused on. And then you switch and read Frodo and Sam. 
and their experience. So when you get to this point and this this uh, mouth of Sauron comes out and shows the mithril coat and the elven cloak, as a reader, you're like, oh, shoot. Um, like as a reader, you're not sure what's happened um, because you haven't read that part yet in the book. Uh, you're reading that much later. And he wanted people to kind of, you know, have that experience. So yeah, he, Frodo's friends are, that's a tough moment for them because they, that is clearly Frodo stuff. They assume that he has Frodo, but as you said, Roy, they, there's still some hope that he doesn't have the ring. They don't know how, but they would kind of know if, if Sauron had reclaimed the ring. Yeah, again, it's the, I think the idea is that if he had the ring, then maybe Sauron himself would be there. Yeah. Right, in corporeal form. Right, we, so, we know what Aragorn's thinking, but the thing is, the mouth of Sauron knows the significance of, okay, it's like we found Frodo's pajamas, <laughs> but we don't like they know it's Frodo's stuff because they address him. Yeah, so they don't, I, know, they don't know that Frodo has the ring. They, yeah, they I think that it's just like here's your friend. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, that's what you were friend. saying before. Okay, 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 okay. I see. That's right. He didn't. Have and the they just ring. assumed he was some some spy sent by Gandalf. So they knew there's some. He's somehow tied to Aragorn and Gandalf, but they don't know that he's got the ring. So yeah, fortunately, none of the soldiers say, oh, no, Sauron has the ring out loud. And, <laughs> and then they slowly back back up slowly to the back, through the back gate. Yeah, and for a- I, I don't think the mouth, which what a name for that guy. I don't yeah. think the mouth is saying your your plan is ruined. I think he's saying your friend is dead. Yep. And he got the reaction he was looking for, clearly. He didn't know how they'd respond, and he got the response that, oh, yeah, this this hurts. Whatever, Whoever this person was, um, they're wow. definitely, yeah. You guys really like that Hobbit, huh? Yeah. So, and so oddly, and I have a question about this. So there's a point at which the eye is searching around Mordor, I guess because they found the shirt, but they don't know where Frodo is anymore. Yeah. And so the eye is maybe searching for Frodo in Mordor. And at yeah. one point it shines right on him. Mm. And does it not see him? I, I don't think that happens in the in the book. I saw your comment on Facebook about that, and I think I think that was just for dramatic effect in the movie. I think you're right. It's probably just kind of searching around. There's obviously some attempted infiltration into Mordor, so he's kind of you know looking around. But I don't think he ever actually spots Frodo because that would really keep his attention. Maybe maybe like like Gandalf, Sauron sleeps with his eyes open. <laughs> Could be. Also, it, it, this reminds me of Victory when Sylvester Stallone escapes by crawling right through the spotlights. <laughs> it's the last place they'll look. He practiced that for weeks to kind of, yes. <laughs> you know, was, uh, just get right in the little border of the light yeah. there. Anyway, so the eye stops looking at Frodo because it's it's focused on the battle. And I'm also going to complain about this. They find themselves pressed into a marching bunch of orcs and goblins and there is a zero percent chance that anyone thinks that they belong in that army <laughs> but well, you know dark and you know there's the lighting's not great and and uh, they do have their orc gear on and that is another thing again i'm sorry to keep referring to the book that's kind of obnoxious but but that is how they make their way through a lot of mordor is as disguised as orcs and just that's kind of marching weird. along yeah like are they people think they're orc children or something because they they're like a third the size of an orc well the orcs come in all shapes and sizes that's, you'll you'll see there's tiny ones there's say. huge ones yeah that that okay. guy with the melted face for example it, it's it's like uh, i mean I don't know what Sauron did. I kind of get the sense that he has a like a nuclear power plant behind Mount Doom, and <laughs> to create a lot of these orcs, he just dumped a lot of toxic waste on everybody because that's what they look like. So I think that's why they come in all shapes and sizes. Okay. Anyway, the battle has begun, and the good guys are fighting. They're they're fighting furiously, John, but it's obvious that it's a losing battle. In the meantime, we have a battle inside Mount Doom as. 
Frodo has reached the point of where he should throw the ring in and he just can't. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is like, I don't, th- it doesn't mean that he fails, but he would not willingly part with the ring according yeah. to the movie. And the only reason the ring finds its way into the lava pit is because we have a fight between Frodo and, and Gollum who has shown back up. Gollum bites his finger off, which is a great moment, by the way, mm-hmm. puts on the ring and he's, he's jumping around very precariously near the edge. And uh, Frodo won't have it. And so he goes and they tussle and they both go over the edge. But Frodo uh, is able to hold on to the ledge. He doesn't fall into the lava. And Gollum does. And as his body is being consumed by the lava, the last thing we see is he holds up a thumbs up. (laughs) So that they know that the future future is safe from the Terminators. Yeah. True. So... As soon as this happened, the eye immediately shoots back to the volcano, right? And yeah. the, if you're the if you're the good guys, where the battle has kind of paused at this moment, you must think, "Oh my gosh, it's happening! It's happening!" And so the eye can't handle it, and the eye kind of like explodes, and the tower falls, and every one of our good guy friends are crying a little bit. And there's a moment of like pure elation, followed by a moment of pure despair because they see Mountain Doom just like fall upon itself and there's just no way frodo could survive that yeah and so they're pretty sad about it but you can survive it if you've got friends who are eagles (laughs) and so the eagles come and they get frodo and they get sam and they take him back and frodo wakes up just in time for one more frolic in the healing room with his hobbit friends (laughs) and everyone comes in and they smile and then okay so there's a lot of there's a an awful lot of denouement in this film. And I know a lot of it is important for the book. I'll go through it as quick as I can. There's like a coronation ceremony for Aragorn. He is met by his lovely elf lady. So Liv Tyler shows up. And so they're going to be together forever, or at least until one of them is dead. I know she was dying. Is she no longer dying? Cause Mordor is dead. No, she'll die, but she'll outlive him. Yeah, but okay. she's for a long time. But so yeah. part of the plot was like, since she didn't escape with the other elves, she's dying. But yeah. it sounded like terminal cancer. She's only got like a week to live, sort yeah. of. She, okay. she will die, which elves don't normally do, because she chose to stay there and, and marry a mortal. But she's still got a, a few good years. This, yeah, this was so. actually one of my final questions. And in, in that, it, the, the movie implies that uh, she's dying like immediately. Like she will die. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, like, uh, like, like immediately. She's but on her deathbed, since, right? Since the but but since the ring was destroyed, she will die naturally. But since mm-hmm. the ring is around, somehow that means she will die. And I kind of feel like that's a movie thing. Mike, you're going to have to help me out because I, I get the sense that for some reason Arwen Arwen's life is tied to the One Ring for some. Yeah, reason. and all the elves are in some way their power. That's one reason why they're leaving and. And, uh, and I can't remember again, the specifics, I didn't get to that part in the book, but I know that like she lives, I think for a couple hundred years, like, but she does die. Her, her choice to marry Aragorn is a choice to kind of become mortal and, and, and lose part of that. Uh, and, and particularly with the ring now destroyed. Yeah. So it, it, I think if Sauron had reclaimed the ring and was wielding that power, she probably would have died sooner, but, but now that it's kind of gone, but still, the destruction of the ring means that, yeah, she, she, unlike her kinspeople who will live on uh, across the sea, uh, she's doomed to die now. Yeah, she made the Superman 2 choice. 
Yeah, she <laughs> she went into the into the chamber. But yeah, okay, yeah. like let's just say, like if Frodo, if if they were a stalemate, Sauron doesn't get the ring, and Frodo doesn't destroy the ring. Mm. For some reason, Arwen will die because of the ring. Yeah, possibly. Again, I'm I'm probably getting it wrong, but but she's what, she's kind of sealed her fate. She's going to die one way or the other, mm-hmm. um, just because. And there's there's a legend that talks about in the book of, of centuries earlier, an elf and a, a man that they got married, and and she basically in that decision is kind of choosing mortality. You you can't marry a a, a human and not kind of somehow become susceptible now to yeah. uh, to death. John, I kind of I side with your point of view here. My impression from this movie is what the movie is trying to tell us is that unless he can defeat, uh, unless the good guys can defeat uh, Sauron, that she is like deteriorating quickly. Like it's not going well for her. That's what the movie it makes me think. Right. And maybe that's not the, that's, the book, but it just seems like we got to hurry up and beat the bad guys because she's yeah, not going to make it. That may have been something that they just slugged in the there maybe because she had like exposure to the nazgul or something and so that like similar to frodo's stab wound or something and that was like hmm. i don't yeah. know okay anyway friends we here we go so uh after they kiss and it's wonderful then we see all the little hobbits and the whole town reveres the hobbits and then the hobbits you know um they're always going to be loved and remembered as heroes in Gondor, but not in the Shire where no one cares about them. <laughs> they come home to the Shire and not like in the book where in the book, Saruman shows up, <laughs> but uh, they're, they're back in the Shire and it's kind of a pedestrian sort of life. Sam gets married to what's her name? Curly hair. Rosie cotton, Rosie cotton. She's lovely. Isn't she? Uh, so he marries her. They have a bunch of kids and they go to help Bilbo take his final journey with the uh, elves. And uh, when Bill, uh, by the way, Bilbo still longs for the ring. I kind of mm. thought that that was over when the ring was destroyed. Yeah. I saw that was a question you had on, on Facebook as well. I, I think my, my thought there is that he, Frodo mentions, he always kind of re- released. He feels that now that, that uh, pull is gone. I think for Bilbo, it's probably just a, uh, a habit. It's just, it's just something that's, and, and it's more, you know, he's not like vicious or, or mean about like, show me the ring. It's just kind of a, oh, I remember like the that again. When I like the yeah, ring. I remember yep, that yeah. shiny ring I used to have. Yep. Okay. Anyway, Bilbo gets to go on the boat with Gandalf because this is the age of men. Wizards are leaving and elves are leaving, <laughs> but Frodo leaves too. Can you believe that Frodo keeping secrets from Sam? And he says, Sam, the rest of the adventure is for you, but Sam's adventure is to go home and, Help clean up the house. So <laughs> yeah. that's that's uh, where our film ends. And, well done. Great summary. Yeah. Now, let me tell you about my big complaint about this movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's all, I, I think the best example of my complaint about this film is with is Liv Tyler, right? Where she especially, but a lot of people in this movie speak every line as though it's the most solemn line they've ever <laughs> spoken ever. And part of it is... The book is written in a certain way that maybe doesn't feel as natural when it's spoken in the film, but a lot of people speak in this film as though they're saying the most reverent thing they've ever said in their life. Right, and, and it, it kind of bugs it me. is four hours yeah. of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It will, and everybody is. I think everybody feels like they're so important 
<laughs> the aggravating thing with with me is like, okay, you know what? I know you want to be king, but you know, just just be a good steward and maybe not just spend all your time just brooding and pissed off all the time. <laughs> I, I could not believe how many hours of Denethor just being grumpy. Uh, <laughs> oh, the movie was. So I had that question too. Denethor. So when they find Denethor, he's sitting on his throne. And earlier in in the two towers, when they find. Theoden, he's just sitting on his throne. So I assume right. if you're a king or you're a steward, you must spend all day on your throne. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like that's what you do. Yeah, I appreciate how the actor plays Denethor. I think he does a good job and, and captures pretty well how Denethor is described in the book. The book's interesting reading again. He actually, at one point, he, he is more a man of action. He does actually carry a sword at one point and actually leads his armies out in one of the forays to mm. uh, in the battle. It was a little more... You know, not as brooding and stationary as he's portrayed in the film, but but that just his his how he has been corrupted, right? Like he comes yeah. from a very prestigious line, but you see the contrast between him and Aragorn, and and he's got one of those those palantirs that allows him to uh, to kind of see what's going on, but also is that opening for Sauron to really corrupt him and make him kind of uh, uh, useless and 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 immobilize him much like Theoden and I love the Theoden character I think the actor plays Theoden so well he's one of my favorite story arcs in the book of basically needing to be kind of woken up he's under a spell he's asleep yeah. and then his re-emergence and I love how his re-emergence takes a little time like he's not just back 100% he still has that self-doubt he still kind of falters but in, in the key moments uh, his kind of true self his noble honorable self it, what it shines through and and that's something I, I love it's one reason I love the books it's not just and the movie it's not just a great story and it is a great adventure story you know I'm not that familiar with Game of Thrones I know what it is I've seen little bits here and there and and so I, I don't know that much about it my guess is that it it would borrow a lot of you know kind of the the imagery the look and the feel the battle the epic and and you know kings and kingdoms and intrigue but the Lord of the Rings, it, it, there, there's so much morality to it. Like the 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 victories on the battlefield are kind of secondary to the moral victories or, or the moral failures that kind of play out. It's very personal and and kind of the 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 trajectory of the people and their kind of personal journey. And and that's one reason why I really love it. So let me ask you: When Theoden is dying. Mm-hmm. And his daughter, Luke Skywalker, says, I'm going to save you. Yeah. And then Theoden Vader says, you already have. Tell your sister that you already have. Yes. So that was just right out of Star Wars. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a great line. I love it. I love that moment. And it's actually not in the book. I'm um, kind of tragically in the book. Like Eowyn killing the, the Witch King and everything, that's all in the book. But in the book, Theoden dies without even knowing that Eowyn was there. And that she actually is the one who saved him, and and um, but I, I like what they did in the movie, uh, and I don't mind them borrowing for Star Wars. That's that's a beautiful scene, and how he said he's, and that's an example of him being redeemed. Like he's yeah. he's dead. He's going to die. He's seconds away from dying, but he won. Like he he achieved this moral victory, and I love the line as he talks about now going to the halls of my fathers, in whose mighty presence, I shall not now be ashamed. What a great line. So let me ask you this then, uh, going a little bit back, back to Denethor, yeah. worse at being the like uh, steward thing. or worse at being a father? He's <laughs> equally terrible at both. Yes. Like, isn't he, some of his lines to Faramir are just heartbreaking. Uh, and Faramir is one of my favorite characters. And um, 
And and that's one of the things I, uh, one of the little critiques I have with the film. I can see how they did it. You got to make so many choices when you're trying to tell this elaborate story and and just limit it to what five hours on film, however long it was. <laughs> but he, but Faramir in the book never falters. He when he is given the opportunity to take the ring by force, he doesn't. He kind of recognizes what it is. In the film, he takes Frodo. He's taking him back to his father and has to kind of you know goes through this process. But in the in the book, he gets it. He's not like Boromir. And, and he recognizes what is going on and lets Frodo go. And he's just so good and maintains his kind of integrity throughout. And, and for his father to just worship Boromir and, and, and just have no appreciation for Faramir is heartbreaking. And Faramir wants that. He craves that. And there's some good lines you where know, Gandalf says, you know, he'll remember he loves you before the end. Uh, but he, and that is true to the book, Faramir basic or Denethor just sends him out on this you know, suicide mission. And he also does say in the book, you know, Faramir says, you wish now that our places were reversed and, and that Boromir were here. And he said, yeah, I wish that. Uh, and so it's, it's just tough. Faramir is one of my favorite characters. He's, he's just a good guy. And uh, again, a person of honor. Is, is the terribleness of Denethor explained really mm-hmm. in yeah you, you get the sense that again he's he's of a very noble lineage like you know the the stewards who took over in place of the king and there's been this and this is like centuries right there's this kind of lore and legend that uh the rightful king will come back at some point in the meantime the stewards will kind of run the show but he's from a very noble line a noble family has a lot of pride has a lot of skill and ability um but he's very much been corrupted. So part of it is, you know, there's that pride, like I am the steward. And when he hears rumors of this ranger of the North, you know, potentially the actual true heir who will come and supplant me, that obviously really bothers him. But he's just like Theoden kind of under a spell and Saruman was completely corrupted. You know, Saruman was like Gandalf, you know, he was kind of the head of the wizards. He was sent to middle earth basically to do good and to, to oppose evil, but he got corrupted Denethor has been corrupted uh, by Sauron. And uh, and so he's just, in his case, his his pride is being really manipulated uh, to, to make him very ineffective as a leader because he doesn't really lead his people. And you know, he, he says, you know, flee for your lives. Like, what do you, why even fight? Like, it's it's useless. It's hopeless. And, and Gandalf has to kind of take over defense of the city. So it's just, yeah, he's been... He's been neutralized by that that evil power of Sauron. But it's so much. It, I mean, I don't remember. I don't remember him actually see, looking through the Palantir. I guess mm-hmm. it can be completely explained that way. That he, I, don't, I don't know if it shows it in the book in the movie. Yeah, yeah. But in the book, yeah, he's using it. Yeah, and I think it would have really been helpful to see him just gazing into it because at least I, once, then you realize, yeah, that's why he's so bad. It's like, how could you? how could you write yourself as just like the absolute, like, I mean, you know, the optics of this, you know, how you, you're just like, you're annoying to watch, man. (laughs) (laughs) And how can, you know, when he goes to kill himself and Faramir, why aren't his, you know, soldiers like say, Hey, wait a minute. And that, that's, that goes into much more detail in the book. There is kind of a little mini revolt and there are soldiers killing each other because on the one hand, you've sworn allegiance and loyalty. He is the steward. But others are like, no, this is just wrong, and um, and so it's 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 tragic. And, and Gandalf makes the comment in the book. I'm not sure if it's in the movie, but in the book he says, you know, the the reach of the enemies come right into Minas Tirith. He's not just fighting us on the battlefield. He's you know from the inside. Now we've been weakened uh, because of what's happened to Denethor. Very good. Uh, right. Okay, I have uh, a lot of questions. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, first of all, um, how do how does Saruman and Wormtongue? Well, Saruman is just on top of uh, what is it? Or think? Yeah, yeah, he's just on top of the tower. Um, <laughs> how do you just get up there? And also, uh, when he's just alone, suddenly like Wormtongue is just behind him. <laughs> so like, do you have to like crawl out of the tower and climb up because there is no door to the flat surface of Orthanc on the roof? I think there's a little trap door. Yeah, we just don't see. Yeah, it. John, there's a trap door. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like okay, there's a trap door. <laughs> I didn't see the seams. That's fine. Uh, okay, so um, it's pretty Pip- good craftsmanship. Is what <laughs> yeah, it is. it's Orthanc. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Pippin looks into the Palantir. He mm-hmm. has a direct communication with Sar. Sauron sees him, and they're like, okay. Sauron saw you, and he thinks... Mary says, don't you understand? Sauron thinks you have the ring. Mm. And so um, by doing that, they they discover that Sauron is going to Minas Tirith. And so Gandalf was like, I'm going to Minas Tirith, and I'm not going alone. But he specifically takes Pippin with him. Mm-hmm. So if if... Sauron thinks Pippin has the ring. Why not send Pippin <laughs> like in the other closer. direction? <laughs> bring, bring him right closer to Sauron. Get him right there. Yeah. I think part of it's just to look after him. You know, he's he's kind of been traumatized and, and sort of affected uh, by that. So I think he just wants to keep him close. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, next question. Uh, the City of the Dead has a green pillar erupting out of it. Mm. Uh, is that just dead power? Or what is that? Is that, power. is that ectoplasm? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, ectoplasm <laughs> from Ghostbuster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, the door to Dimholt, where none return, um, and that is you know where they go to the the alleyway in the middle of Middle Earth, uh, where the army of the dead is on the other side. How many doors in Middle Earth is a place where none return? At least a third of them, I would guess. <laughs> I feel like a third of the doors. Yes. <laughs> I asked about Arwen's life in the ring, so that's fine. Okay. I don't, so I don't I don't want to why am I even asking this because I don't want to start a large conversation but <laughs> where are all the dwarves where are yeah. all the dwarves how come none of the dwarves are helping out and again this is it's kind of elaborated in the book in the book you get a sense of of the scope and scale of everything that's going on and um, and they they've got their hands full so they're kind of these powers of darkness have kind of been unleashed all over so there's different parts of Middle Earth but but now they're kind of uh, uh, feeling threatened and defending themselves and and yeah so part of it's kind of just you know lack of awareness of what's going on everywhere um but part of it's also they're kind of tied up in their own lands uh as as things are getting worse for everyone well no one's bothering the hobbits no yeah, I know. and that's and that's you know that's one of the things that's kind of mentioned how the the rangers uh kind of you know they they're held in suspicion and and you know who are these people but they're actually the ones kind of protecting you know the shire and among other places and just kind of doing their work very confidentially you know not in the open but the helping protect the few remaining kind of pristine untouched by evil places okay Th- this question might not be right out but is middle earth is it like a planet like is it <laughs> round and how big is it and or is so it you've got like, the maps? Yeah. Well, I mean, they have the maps. Like, or is it like actually a flat place? You know, where you could fall off the edge, and and that's why, like, the the when they sail off to the west, it's like some magical place in the west. It's not someone mm-hmm. somewhere that no one can sail to. And like the lands to the south, like they don't actually connect to the other. Like, I mean, can can you go? Can you sail around 
the planet uh, of wherever they are. Yeah. Never really makes it clear. It's mm. uh yeah, but it's interesting. Yeah. That was a great question, John. All right. That's is it? Okay. Fine. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I always just assumed Middle Earth was uh you know, like five a, square miles in England. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Am I the only one with questions? No, I've got some. Okay. okay. I'll wait till you're done. I have one more question. Frodo calls his book The Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, I always thought The Lord of the Rings was Sauron. Yeah. But maybe not. And if he is, if it is Sauron, why would Frodo... It seems like Frodo, someone who like went up against Sauron, would not give credence to Sauron by calling the name of his book The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I, I had that question too, actually. And there's probably some explanation. Those who are really into this probably know the answer and are frustrated that we don't know. But that was kind of a curious choice for me as well. And uh, But I think my understanding is Lord of the Rings is kind of a reference to Sauron. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess he could have been saying, well, it's me. I'm the only person mm-hmm. who overcame the ring. For yeah. a long time, did he? Did he? But he didn't uh, until the end. He uh, he's ninety nine percent. Well, he needed he needed Gollum, yeah, yeah. and Sam. <laughs> Maybe Gollum's the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay, okay, my I'm turn. Done. I'm done. Yeah, I, I I don't have too much. You you'll be amazed. I know that, that we've already covered this a lot. It's We've already answered it. there. <laughs> but um, so let's see. Just looking at some of my notes here. I've talked about most of these things, a lot of stuff again, that, that, um, that I understand, you know, kind of exceptions with the film, but, but I'm quite understanding and this time through really appreciated more than ever. Wow. They really did a good job. And, and a a few scenes, again, I went back and listened with the director commentary and it was Peter Jackson and the two main writers. And it was really interesting to kind of get their take. And it just reinforced what I knew, which is they are, you know, big fans of Tolkien. They have a, a real respect for the book, but how do you put this on screen? You can't put everything on there. So, so there are a lot of things I thought they did really well. I've mentioned some of my grievances already. I want to talk about, I think just the, well, a couple of things. So the ending, so very famously, you know, it goes on and on. <laughs> like there are so many times when you think, okay, the film's over, but then it goes on for another 30 minutes and then it ends, but then it goes on. And that was interesting to actually hear them talk about it in the direct, in the, the commentary they're very aware of this and they acknowledge a lot of kind of criticism, like how many endings can it have? And Peter Jackson said something kind of funny. He said, I think part of it was just, uh, what do you call it? The bladder factor. He said people in the theater just had to go to the bathroom and like, when is this thing going to end? And just kind of got annoyed that it went on and on and on. But wouldn't it have been cool? I know you both know this, but um, I realize you got to end it at some point. But as you said, Roy, in the book, Saruman doesn't die. Um, a falling off or think Saruman is kind of banished and he and Wormtongue end up in the Shire and they cause lots of trouble. So when the hobbits get back after all this has happened, there's real trouble in the Shire. And, and so Pippin and Mary, they like marshal the hobbits. There's like a hobbit army forms. There's a whole battle for the Shire. And that is so cool. And that would have been great to see on film, but you got to draw the line at somewhere. Um, but I do love the whole time I was watching this film in the theater and just enjoying it. Um, I kept thinking, please end this way, please end this way. And they did, uh, is Sam walks back from the gray Havens and, and the very last line in the book as well, I'm back. And that's how they ended the movie. And I love that. And, and in that scene, I learned from watching the director's commentary that, that the little girl that runs out and jumps into her father's arm is actually Sam Austin's daughter. And the, the baby that Rosie Conn is holding is that actress's child as well. So it's really sweet and tender. And he's back to the Shire. In the book, Sam becomes the mayor of Hobbiton and, and lives a long time and just you know does a great job. And 
And I, I love um, Sam's character. I love all of them. It was really fun. Um, I was in a fun position when these films were coming out, wildly popular. Everyone's going to see them, anticipating the next one. And most of my family members hadn't read the books. And so I was kind of in this fun position to uh, kind of know some things that were going to happen and and to get some questions from siblings like, you know, who is this brazen hussy making moves on Aragorn? And I go, A, one, like, what's the deal here? And and kind of know, you know, what's going to happen there. And, and who is the she that Gollum's referring to that he's going to take, uh, you know, Frodo and Sam to? And and uh, it was fun to just kind of anticipate what would happen, knowing how things play out, but then really curious to see how it would be portrayed in film. And I think it's just a, a really great movie. Very well done. Oh, one last thing I'll say. So you mentioned uh, Eowyn. Was any of that a question? I'm just... <laughs> no, there's no question there. Um, okay. So but Eowyn and Faramir, uh, they do just fine. They do end up together and, and they... Uh, they end up going to Athelion, and and that's where they kind of settle down, and and you have now this kind of actual link between Gondor and Rohan. Now they're the two kingdoms are kind of connected through marriage, and 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 I, I love how their story plays out as well. Oh, so two, no questions, two, two just, second just Yes, make a first. <laughs> yes, there we go. So I'm done. That's it. Yay! All right, I'm not going to allow Quite any more flick. questions or comments. <laughs> All right. Um, so we are just launching straight into Wait. Tel Aviv on Fire. What, John? I, oh, that's right. Yeah. You want to do the taglines. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Here's my tagline for Lord of the Rings, colon, the Return of the King, colon, extended edition. Stadium pals sold in the lobby. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, okay. My tagline is the journey ends. Or does it? Yes, it does. No, wait. Yes, it ends. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, mine is uh, sure we could just ask an eagle to drop this thing in the volcano, but what's the fun in that? <laughs> oh, that's that's I was going to bring this up because um, that was a big that was a big you know how it should have ended you know why didn't they send the eagles? Um, and you know I've I've thought about this for about fifteen years or so, and I think <laughs> I, it is kind of naive to say the eagle can just drop it in because like the Nazgul exists and Tarn right. probably anticipates that, and mm. you know those weird dragon things they could. They, they should be able to, like, handle the eagles on their home. And, and so they could probably just kill an, any yeah. eagle that flies in. And so they'd probably be watching for that. So I, I'll just say that. You know, the, the that part with the eagles, too, in the book, I got to say, I, again, the, the books are so well written. I just highly recommend anyone. They're just so good. And and I, I the first time I read the books, uh, like, tears came to my eyes when I read that part because it's so poignant that they're, they're about to be destroyed, this final, last, desperate effort to kind of create the diversion by Frodo a little time. And then they're going down. I think it's uh, Pippin that is is actually, like, dying and in the book. Like, his he feels his spirits kind of leaving his body. And then it says, from far away, he hears someone say, the eagles are coming. And that's right out of The Hobbit as well. And in the book, Pippin says that that can't be because that's Bilbo's story. Um, but they come in kind of just the, the exact right time to just buy them a little more time, kind of save the day. Now, I don't know if this is true. Um, Tolkien lore masters will know this better than I do, but I thought I heard somewhere, and it kind of makes sense. Tolkien was very much, of course, affected by the wars. He served in World War I, uh, did a lot of his writing uh, during World War II, and and. In, in both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the eagles kind of coming at this very opportune time and, and when there's very little hope. Um, some have speculated that that's a reference to the Americans joining the war, you know, World War One, World War Two, kind of coming to the aid of Britain with their backs against the wall uh, in, in both cases and, and the eagles, you know. And so there may be a little bit of a, 
uh, a, a reference there. And, and Tolkien's experience in war um, really informs the book. You, you see a lot of that um, come through again in the characters and the story and things like that. I always assumed the eagles were referenced to when in World War One the giant eagles helped <laughs> the it war be, effort. It could be just that simple right there. Yes, yeah. the famous Battle of the Eagles. Yeah. Straightforward. Okay, now I'm going to punch the next person in the groin who says another word about the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so Tel Aviv on fire, Mike. Yeah, I, I'll be eager to hear uh, how you two, uh, what you two think about this film. I, it was kind of, again, a, a wild card. I had seen this film. We have uh, on the campus where I teach uh, international cinema, and and it's just a you know modest gathering. You know, a few dozen people get together, and so that's where I saw this and really enjoyed it. And then I went back and watched it again, and, and liked it even more the second time. So this is a, a foreign film. It's in uh, Hebrew and Arabic with subtitles. And the one reason why I love this movie is because the movie exists. As I mentioned in the last podcast, I love that it's a collaboration. You had both Israelis and Palestinians working on this film. And um, just a quick little political side note, just kind of, you know, current events with Gaza and Israel and everything. I've, I've spent some time there among both Palestinians and Israelis. And, and people, you know, will um, have very strong opinions and feelings, of course, about that conflict and, and, and often you know, have take kind of strong sides on who is side is kind of, of right. And, and this sounds like a cop out, but when people ask me about it, it's, I don't really have a side because when I'm among and with Israelis, uh, I, I really understand kind of their side and their mentality and, and have all this sympathy for them. Especially I remember walking out of the Holocaust museum in Jerusalem and I was like ready to sign up for the Israeli Defense Forces. And then I spend time with Palestinians in Palestinian villages among Palestinians, and I'm ready to start throwing rocks at the Israelis. Like I get it. I, I understand the emotions of both sides and um and and the you know hi- history and everything that's played out. I love that that Israelis and Palestinians work together and collaborated to make this film. So in this film, it's called Tel Aviv on Fire. And it's technically a comedy, and there are very funny moments, but it's, again, it, it doesn't shy away from the heavy subject matter. And Tel Aviv on Fire is the name of a Palestinian soap opera. And um, and so the main character is a Palestinian man named Salam. And Salam is like a Palestinian Kramer. Uh, he doesn't act like Kramer, but he kind of reminds me of Kramer, so from a physical sense. So picture Kramer. Uh, this is Salam. And uh, he gets a job helping out on this Palestinian soap opera. He is Palestinian. Uh, and we get the sense as we watch the film that his uncle who works on the film uh, got him the job. And he's kind of been an underachiever his whole life, kind of had a hard time holding a job and and um, not had a lot of success. And so this is kind of, you know, just another chance for him. His uncle gets in this job so he can work and basically just giving people coffee. And and technically, he's he's got very good Hebrew. So he's kind of helping these uh, Palestinian Arabic speaking actors to get the Hebrew right as they play these characters. Um, so to get to work, Salam lives in Jerusalem, but to get to, uh, his work where they film this Palestinian soap opera is in Ramallah. So he's got to pass through an Israeli checkpoint. And, um, this is where he meets Asi, this, uh, Israeli, uh, checkpoint officer. Um, and, it, and, and so this is a really important uh, relationship in the film is Salam, this Palestinian passing through the Israeli checkpoint run by Asi, this Israeli. Asi finds out that Salam works on Tel Aviv on Fire, the soap opera. He assumes he's a head writer. Yeah, so he, he's a little, he, he has to, 
he he exaggerates uh, his role uh, with the soap opera. Um, so Tel Aviv on Fire is popular among Palestinians, but also Israelis. Ossie's wife happens to like the soap opera. And so this is kind of, you know, a chance for, you know, Ossie's kind of intrigued uh, by this guy. And in kind of a funny way, uh, he ends up meeting him. He he has to, he's normally just passing through the checkpoint, but there was a, a question on dialogue that, that Salam felt pretty strongly. You shouldn't word, use the word explosive to describe a woman in a complimentary way. So he's kind of double checking as he passes through the checkpoint with the Israeli female soldier. And of course, at the word explosion, she's very suspicious and orders him out. That's how he comes in contact with Asi. And, uh, and Asi's kind of intrigued that this guy writes for Tel Aviv on fire. So Asi, the Israeli checkpoint guard, begins to kind of exert an influence on the show. He's interested in kind of the characters. He's kind of annoyed that his wife uh, finds the Palestinian kind of hero uh, uh, handsome and romantic. He he wants the Israeli uh, the the Israeli general portrayed in the soap opera to be more uh, liked and beloved, and and so he he starts to exert his influence on the show because he can determine whether Asi gets to work or, or whether, sorry, Salam gets to work or not. So he's got some leverage there and begins to exert this influence uh, on the show. So a good time to introduce some of the other characters. Uh, the main actress on the soap opera, her name is Tala. This gets kind of confusing though, because uh, Tala is the name of the, the person in the film. That's her, her, the character name, but the character she plays on the soap opera is Manal, but, but Manal is a Palestinian spy uh, and and her name is Rachel, pretending to be Israeli. So she's uh, a Palestinian spy pretending to be an Israeli, so she can infiltrate kind of the Israeli military high command and get their secrets, so she can assist the Palestinians. Tel Aviv on fire, by the way, takes place in 1967. So this is back when a war is about to break out between uh, Israel and its neighbors, and this is when many of the 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 places that are currently Palestinian are taken over by the Israeli army. So I should have mentioned that earlier, but the, the soap opera takes place back in 1967. So Tala. Can I quickly ask, mm-hmm. did you watch much TV? Like when you're hanging out in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and places? Cause like, I, I like how possible is it for a soap opera like this to exist? Yeah. No, totally popular. Cause you would have Israeli channels, and Palestinian channels, and you'd have channels from neighboring countries, right, that, that you could access. And so you'll have all those different uh, options uh, for your viewing pleasure. But, but I mean, but like the Israelis, I, I would think the Israelis would kind of censor this kind of subject mm. matter that, you know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. And and it mentions that because it, it comes up a few times, like, you know, Ossie asked the other guards, hey, do you guys watch this so far? I'm like, no, it's anti-Semitic. And it's like, of course it's anti-Semitic. It's, you know, from the Palestinian perspective. And so we they all kind of get it. The, the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians is just, you know, front and center. It's ever present in yeah. this film. So, so no, I think that's, that's very plausible that that it wouldn't be censored. If you were an Israeli wanting to watch a Palestinian soap opera, you could. And, and Ossie's wife likes it. Yeah. <laughs> and she makes, there's so many great lines where, um, you know, he's like, why do you like this? It's a, a Palestinian, you know, it totally is on the Palestinian perspective. And he said, hey, it's not everything's political, it's romantic. And and that's some that's kind of a theme that there are, again, there there are uh, forces that, that, that seek to divide people and that whole kind of othering and there are forces that that bring us together and help us appreciate. You know, we're really this the same, and and that comes through um, really well in this film. So, so that's Tala, the actress uh, that that's in the film or in the soap opera. Sorry, playing uh, a Palestinian spy uh, pretending to be an Israeli, <laughs> so she can uh, help the Palestinian cause. And, uh, and Miriam, a French actress. 
Yes, and she's French, and that's a good point. She actually doesn't speak great Arabic. She's we we assume she's Palestinian. That's kind of her nationality, but she lives in France. But she's working in Ramallah in the West Bank to appear on this soap opera, um, and uh, and so her Arabic isn't great. When she and Salam speak, they often speak in English to each other. It's it's kind of the best way for them to communicate. A nice but reprieve for us. Yes, right. Yes, we get a little bit of. Uh, uh, I'm glad the subtitles are still there, but you realize, hey, they're speaking English. Yeah. Um, Miriam is Salam's old girlfriend, and we kind of get the sense as we watch the film that they had a relationship in the past. Salam kind of blew it. Uh, Miriam's great, but Salam kind of lost his chance with her because probably, again, just just sort of uh, uh, struggling in life, holding down a job, you know, finding any success in anything. But they bump into each other, and and Salam, of course, is very interested in trying to win her back. So the main part of the show, it's, it's just really interesting as you see this increasing influence of Asi, this Israeli checkpoint guard, uh, getting more and more influence on the show. Uh, so at one point, because of Asi's influence, kind of steering the show in a slightly more slightly more sympathetic uh, portrayal of Israelis, the lead, the head writer quits. Like, I can't take this anymore. This is a Palestinian show. And you're you know making the Israeli characters a little more sympathetic. So she quits, which then opens the door for Salam to, to take his, to become a writer, a full-time writer. So now he's got a great influence on the show and Aussie's maintaining his influence um, to try and steer the show in a more pro-Israeli direction. When, when Salam gets the head writer job, he realizes he can't do it. Like he's not a writer. And so he kind of relies on Aussie. Aussie's influencing the show. Salam uses the opportunity as a writer on the show to sneak in little messages to Miriam, his, the, the girl he's trying to win back. So some of the dialogue is, is specific to them and their relationship. And Miriam sees this. She works in a hospital in Jerusalem and occasionally will see this soap opera. She knows Salam's working on it and she'll catch those little little lines that he's sneaking in uh, to kind of uh, impress her. And that, that kind of endears her more to him. Let's see, Asi, the Israeli uh, wants, what he wants to have happen is that this Palestinian spy, uh, Rachel, uh, the Palestinian pretending to be Israeli and this Israeli general that she's trying to, you know, get close to so she can aid the Palestinian side. He wants them to fall in love and get married. And, uh, and that's what he's really pushing for in a very, like a very strong way. And it's a really, there's a, a, a poignant scene where he says, you know, wouldn't that be great? Basically, if, if this Palestinian Israeli get married, you know, that solves everything. Uh, no more checkpoints. He said, that's, that's what we need. We, we just need in the soap opera, the, the Israelis and Palestinians to get together. And, and Salam's just kind of, you know, look around like that's, that's, that's a fantasy. That's not going to happen. But you get this growing tension in the film of because of Aussie's influence, the this Palestinian soap opera is kind of getting more, again, sympathetic to the Israeli side. You see the Palestinian spy and the Israeli general getting closer together. Looks like they are going to get married at one point. But then you've got the, the pushback from the other side, the producers of the show, the backers who are providing financial backing. They're kind of distressed by this more sympathetic uh, portrayal of Israelis. And so they want to kind of push back. We got to kind of eliminate this uh, budding relationship, this genuine love between this Palestinian spy and Israeli general. So the solution is we'll just kill her off. Let's have her get cancer and she'll die. And that relationship is over. And then in a really chilling scene, Asi has Salam abducted. Like he yeah. sends the Israeli defense forces to get him, yeah. you know, blindfold him, haul him in, puts a gun to his head. Um, 
and said, what about the wedding? And it's really like, this is a comedy, but that's a really chilling scene. And it just reinforces the position that Salam is in relative to the Israelis. I admit when I was watching this, I, I was thinking, I mean, because it could have been anyone. I assumed he was being kidnapped by Hamas or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, saying, hey, there's too much, there's too much You're pro- making it too pro- on here. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, this, yeah. this is what we got could have been because it, it's high stakes right this is and that's something i love about the film it's again technically a comedy but the israeli-palestinian conflict is just right there they don't shy away from it and they don't minimize it in any way in fact it just becomes even more personal and and again poignant as, as you see these these characters this is their world that they live in um at one point uh one of the the actor who portrays the israeli general is hey you know why are you making my my character so sympathetic. Uh, and Salam's like, don't you like it? You know, it makes you more, it kind of adds this dimension. He's like, I was in an Israeli prison for seven years. They're not nice. He's like, I, I kind of feel weird, uh, you know, kind of playing the sympathetic Israeli character when I personally, myself as a human being have been in an Israeli prison. Yeah. So, so you have this, again, this kind of building tension, like how is this going to play out? Um, uh, Salam finally gets a date with Miriam. This is a really sad part of the movie where they finally get together. Salam's so excited. And, and, and the whole date gets sabotaged by Tala, this kind of prima donna actress from France who forces Salam to write the, her scenes so she doesn't quit. She's just mad about getting cancer and having her character killed off. And so so his his chance with Miriam is, is sabotaged because Tala uh, kind of forces him to, to stay in her apartment and work until, until the scene is ready. But this does kind of it, it's kind of a turning point because Salam kind of realizes I can write and and he and that's kind of the he actually is a good writer and he's he's doing well now at this and and one thing that's kind of the way the show is playing out is you know how is this soap opera going to end and that's the big question Asi is insisting that the Israeli and Palestinian get married and that they truly love each other and they get married because they're in love not because She's a spy, but she really has fallen for this Israeli. And that has to happen in his mind. The, the backers, the producers, they don't want that to happen. So they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. The, the uncle who got him the job, who's kind of in charge of the show, Salam the Job, his, his, uh, the way the movie is going to end is that um, they are, there will be a wedding um, because that will produce, you know, great interest and intrigue in the show. But um, Rachel, the, the spy, the Palestinian spy, in that setting, with all the, the high command of the Israeli military around, will blow them all up. That's how the soap opera is going to end. Her, her bouquet has the world's largest detonator in it. That's right. She's got the detonator in the bouquet so she can blow everyone up and, and, um, and kill all these Israelis um, because she's, she's loyal to the Palestinian cause, of course. So um, Salam, I, I love the scene where he, the tables kind of shift a little bit. He's the writer now. He, he's going to help kind of determine what happens. By the way, the, the other thing that's going to happen is that's going to be the end of the show. One season, she blows him up. That's kind of how the season's going to end. But uh, Salam brings uh, Ossie in. They meet uh, in a, a little cafe. There's some significance with hummus that we can talk about later. And they sit down and talk. And, and uh, Salam says, you know, this, this is how it's going to be. And he writes the ending. And we, like we do spoiler alerts, right? I mean, this is, so anyone who, anyone who wants to watch the film, I love the ending. And when I was watching it with this group of people, you know, cheers kind of rang out. It was just such a, a fun, clever ending. Um, we can talk again about some of the, the great lines and, 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 and nice moments from this film. 
but uh, at the very end, there is the wedding. So they're 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 getting ready to to marry each other. Uh, Rachel has the the detonator so she can blow everyone up, uh, and then the rabbi comes out, and the rabbi takes off his disguise, and it's Aussie, the actual Israeli checkpoint officer, is now in the He's soap an opera. Actor now, yeah, it's an actor, and he says, um, you know, you're both under arrest. Uh, basically, uh, Rachel for being a Palestinian spy, and and Yehuda for being dumb enough to to want to marry a Palestinian spy for not realizing that this is a Palestinian <laughs> spy. And and I love the line, you know, yeah, you can get married in hell. And so they're, <laughs> both, they're both arrested. And then the great part is, you know, a little bit later on it says, you know, now season two. And that's kind of a victory for Salam. Personal victory because he gets to keep his job. He's now a writer. Things are going well. His life is turning around. But there's just a lot of kind of symbolism there. Um with this conflict and some great lines again. So there are some really great lines that, that we'll talk about, but that's kind of the summary here uh, of the film. And, and it, it ends with kind of this, this hopeful ending. One reason again, I, I, because the hopeful ending is that we'll continue to collaborate. There will continue yeah. to be talk and collaboration. And, and, you know, at the end, there's the scene I hadn't noticed it the first time, but watching it the second time when Salam is trying to put this final scene together, trying to figure things out. And he goes to look for his uncle and his uncle's asleep uh, in a, a prop car. Yeah. As I recall, it's like an old car, like a 1967 car. His uncle had talked about, you know, I was there in 1967. I know what happened to us. And I'm making this for your generation. I want you to remember how we were wronged. And, and, and then this is our struggle and our battle. And then Salam kind of looks and he sees on the movie set, there's kind of the ocean that, that you kind of look across the ocean. There were some scenes in the soap opera and just a painting of an ocean, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what, what do I want? And he's, he's had this collaboration with Aussie, this Israeli, not by choice, like basically he's been forced into it, but they do collaborate. One of the great lines in the film, and I think Aussie's the first one to say it is how do you know two people are in love? They listen to each other. Yeah. And so they've been collaborating. And and now I, I love at the end, um, uh, he kind of is winning Miriam back. Miriam and Salam are watching the final episode of the soap opera with with Miriam's father. And and um, and she said that, yeah, Salam promoted Aussie. And, and uh, he's kind of he's kind of got more power now. He's got more leverage than he had before. And so it's it's a very hopeful ending. It doesn't you know, it's not it doesn't wrap everything up. The conflict still exists. The 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 passions and feelings on both sides. But but let's let's move on to season two. Let's let's keep right. you know, collaborating. Season two, where one of the main actors is now an actual Israeli IDF. That's right, <laughs> an actual Israeli soldier, and that's significant, right? One of the things that you know, with what's happened the last few months with Gaza and Israel, that's just heartbreaking to me is you know there are just those horrific, um, barbaric attacks by Hamas on Israelis, killing indiscriminately and taking hostages. And then I, and I knew when that happened, like one of my first thoughts is, wow, there's going to be a, a, a huge um, retaliation on the Israeli side, um, you know, which you understand and recognize, of course, that's going to happen. But, but knowing what I know about Gaza and how densely populated it is, you just know there's going to be tons of civilian casualties. And, and it's just so hard because this film represents collaboration like the people who made this movie are israelis and palestinians willing to work together they don't they're not surrendering their 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 feelings and their emotions and 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 their grievances and and the injustices of the past either side they're fully aware of them but they're willing to kind of work with each other and see each other and one of the things i just thought after this all went down 
um, is that that pool of people on both sides willing to talk and and willing to work together and see the humanity each other's side is probably dwindling now. Um, as more and more people are personally affected, you know, it's one thing to kind of talk about that theoretically, but when you have a family member who's been killed or blown up, you know, that it, it tends to move people to the more extreme sides of just, you know, violence is the answer. Or if it's not the answer, that's just what I'm going to do because I've had it. And and that's just so tragic. And and one of the great lines in this film that Salam says is, is there nothing between bombs and surrender? Well, you just got to stop saying quotes. <laughs> there are so many great lines. I guess I'm done. That's the summary. Well, and and I, I'd love to hear what, uh, what Roy, you and John... Uh, uh, think of this film. I I do like it a lot. I think it's very hopeful and and practical. There there is it, there's a little bit of a. I mean, I think it's a very sensible message, but also a really melancholy message. Yeah. Uh, just because the whole they keep saying over and over again, our goal is to we need to keep the show going. We can't yeah. end the show. Like because yeah. ending the show, pretty much like what that means is one of the ends is, you know, one of the satisfying endings of the show is like this side wins or this side wins. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so when they say, you know, we need to keep the show going, it, it's kind of a very conservative way to say, okay, you know, we have problems, but we need to keep going in the direction let's, let's we're going, going, which, which yeah. isn't like, which isn't ideal. Right. I mean, in either case, cause it's like, okay. Cause both sides kind of are unhappy in, yeah. in a certain way and you there's know, not an obvious solution or anything yeah yeah but. yeah and, and, and it just just the whole idea is okay we 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 keep going this way even though you know i mean the palestinians in the movie i mean they refer to it as an occupation yeah um, which is not yeah. ideal that's not how you <laughs> want things to end you know no. you want your season two to start with freedom rather than occupation but like to yeah. kind of say it's like okay this is the this is what we have right now season two we need it to be this way still and maybe season three, you know, we'll get something done, but you know, yeah, Mike, like you said, it's just like, I mean, yeah, there, there aren't going to be too many people, you know, willing to, to do this cal- uh, collaboration in the future. So I, yeah. 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 So what I like about this film is to me of all the Israeli Palestinian Palestinian collaboration films I've seen, mm-hmm. this is like the empire strikes back of, of, <laughs> Because you have this huge conflict in the background, but the movie is about a couple of characters and their personal relationships. Yeah. 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 Yep. And, and that's something I love. Again, that, that like, what do we have in common? It, ultimately, the two main characters, Salam and Asi, the Palestinian Israeli, what is their main motivation? They want to impress the women in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, a, that's a universal thing. They, that's a universal thing that anyone can relate to. They want the women in their lives to to like them and 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 love them and appreciate them. And <laughs> there's there's so many great lines in the film. But that's that's the their main motivation. And one happens to be an Israeli guard, and the other is a Palestinian soap opera writer. But they're they're the same, and and they come to kind of understand that. And and there's that, you know, kind of mutual understanding and recognition and. And I love that, again, humanizing aspect that, that, yeah, there are very real political realities and geopolitical realities that influence our life. But, but the human experience, um, it, it's remarkably 
similar from, from one person to another and one part of the world to another. So, yeah, so we can talk about other things. I've got other comments I can make about the film, but... Uh, I, I do have uh, some questions. Yeah, yeah. Do I jump in? Okay. Can Israel seriously not get good hummus, uh, uh, hummus <laughs> in, in Israel? There, that was a little surprising. Do you have to, like, only Palestinians make good well, hummus? No, there's good hummus everywhere. But I, it's interesting that Aussie, he, he specifically says, I want good Arab hummus. You know, that's sort of something he kind of recognizes. It's going to be a little more legitimate, maybe a little more uh, history and heritage to it. And Well, he's and fooled so, by canned hummus. Yeah, apparently his palate is just trash because, yeah, he, he <laughs> eats the dog food hummus and it's just fun. Although, I, you know, I usually don't crave hummus, but seeing like all that lemon juice poured into it, I'm yeah. kind of like, ooh, that could be really good. And the hummus, like too, yeah, yeah, it, it, um, it, it that's a, a, a nice scene at the end. We learn in the film that Salam hates hummus. He won't eat it. And we learn later why, because during uh, uh, the first intifada, this first uprising, he was, I think, six years old living in this village in the West Bank. And, and it was, uh, they were kind of under siege and, and, and stuck there. And he ate nothing but hummus for, what, a few weeks and so he's got this aversion to it. Not only would, I mean, anyone would probably hate any food they were had to eat for a long period of time, but also just the memories of that. That's, that's a big part of his upbringing is that oppression that he felt directly and specifically from the Israeli side. So when he sits down at the end in the cafe with Asi and he's eating hummus, I, I guess you could interpret that lots of different ways. I don't know exactly what the writers and directors had in mind, but to me, it just kind of says, you know, I'm, I'm willing to move forward. I'm willing to kind of turn the page and, and this is a bitter memory for me, but let's see if there's a different way forward than what it's been for the last 50 years. Next question. Uh, the Israeli general is named Yehuda. Yehuda. Yeah. Now uh, the, the famous street in yeah. the Israeli portion, the, the Ben Yehuda street, which mm-hmm. is, you know, where all the like fun shops are in, yeah. in Jerusalem is that is that supposed to be a joke? Because I assume Ben Yehuda is the most Israeli of all Israelis if the big street is named after him. I, I think, and I think that's kind of the joke. Is just they they went this Palestinian soap opera gives the most kind of stereotypical names to the Israeli characters. Yehuda, what a what a a, a Jewish Israeli sounding name, and and Rachel Raquel, you know, just epitomizing with <laughs> just uh, yeah, given the most stereotypical Jewish names we can. Nice. Okay. Okay. Now that's that's that. Okay. Now, uh, Mike. In five sentences or less, could you please explain 1967 Oslo Agreement? <laughs> yeah, and that, that's an interesting reference that the uncle makes and, and a really interesting scene where the uncle said, you know, this is just like, he, he references Oslo. So Oslo came much later. So 1967, um, I can't do it in five sentences or less. I'll try to be really quick. But in 1967, there's the, the Six-Day War where Israel expanded its borders, basically. They preemptively attacked their neighbors, uh, Egypt and Jordan and Syria, because um, they were about to be attacked. And 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 so there'd been tensions building for a long time. In the process of this war, Israel, that's when Israel takes over militarily what we refer to as the West Bank, which is predominantly Palestinian uh, Arabs, mostly Muslims, and what's now the Gaza Strip, all the Sinai Peninsula, but that's given back to Egypt later. So much of the, the when we talk about Palestinians, um, many of the Palestinians it's 1967 when they kind of lost their land yeah. to the Israelis. And when they talk about the occupation, they, that that's, and, and there's another great scene. One of my favorite scenes is when Ossian and Salam are talking at the checkpoint and 
Asi talks about the uh, the characters in the soap opera, and Marwan is the Palestinian kind of operative, and uh, Asi refers to him as a terrorist, and uh, and Salam just kind of says, sort of matter of factly, yeah, we we call him a freedom fighter, and uh, and Asi is like, oh, he's a terrorist. I my job is to you know find and round up and imprison all the Arwans that are out and there, and I know all the Arwans, and I know them, and then Salam says, uh, we know him better. Yeah. And that's it's a great line. Like it, it depends on your perspective. Is from the Israeli perspective, you can kind of understand their their absolute need for security, considering their past. We're never going to be at anyone's mercy again. We're not going to trust our well being and safety to anyone. And all these centuries of oppression we faced, the Holocaust, and so on, never again. From the Palestinian side, they they see it as an occupation. They their lands that they had lived in for centuries uh, are taken. They are. There's so many great scenes, uh, the imagery of just the, the, the day when Salam can't get across the checkpoint because Aussie has his ID kind of holding him hostage to, to influence the show and he can't get back into Jerusalem and he's just kind of standing at the wall. And the West Bank is full of those walls separating the Israelis from the Palestinians and, and one side pretty much has the power and the other doesn't. And you see that desperation, that frustration, that's his reality. And so... so the Oslo was uh, the Oslo Peace Accords. You know, there was great hope. This was, I think, in the the nineties, perhaps. I, I I'm sorry, I don't have my timeline right, but it seems like oh, okay. uh, this was Clinton and, and Arafat. Uh, uh, I should have checked that. But but the Oslo Peace Accords, the idea, well, so it was a, a try to kind of navigate this. It's such a complex thing. The yeah. the geography, yeah. who controls what space, and and you have a lot of Israeli Jewish settlements now in the West Bank, which had been primarily Palestinian, still mostly Palestinian, but now tens of thousands of Israelis live in the West Bank, and 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 it just makes it very difficult. But Oslo, the peace accords, kind of had a path towards Palestinian statehood, where there would be the potential going forward for Palestine to emerge as an independent state. And of course, that never happened. That never materialized. So you see the uncle just very disillusioned. This is just a big myth. It's just another, you know, uh, empty promises. Myth like Oslo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and so you see their frustration and discouragement um, at at kind of you know promises, aspirations that that never materialized. Hmm. Uh, okay, Roy, you have tons of questions. I have no questions. I think it's a really lovely film, and yeah. I have some awards to give away. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm but ready. I have to no questions. Okay. Let me let me just see, let me look at my notes real quick and see. I think I touched on everything, but I did. I really like this film. It was it was uh, I was amazed, kind of watching it again. And this is one I also just watched in bits and pieces because I could watch it on Tubi. And so in my office at work, like at lunch or at the end of a workday, squeezing in like 15 or 20 minutes here. So it's ideally you watch it in one shot, but I just watched little snippets and went back and watched a few scenes again, and and I just thought. I like this film a lot. I, I like what they've done here, and uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. Now, don't um, go away uh, because we do have taglines. Oh yeah, tagline. oh good. Okay, well, uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead? What's your tagline? yeah? My other taglines, I, I you know, were silly, and I know taglines are supposed to be silly. This is a little more serious one, but but I just put yeah, there is something between bombs and surrender, it's Tel Aviv on fire. And, and just the fact that that film exists, uh, it makes me happy. John, what about you? Tagline, some soap operas end, unlike some occupations. <laughs> mm. Okay, my tagline is, no rotten tomatoes here, only figs and hummus. Oh, that's good. I like <laughs> that good. one, yeah. 
Yeah. Trying to think of another word for occupation. I felt like that was maybe a little mm. song there. <laughs> All right, John. Uh, we need to pay the bills. Oh, so yeah, can, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody, first of all, patreon.com slash ours, ours, ours. That is the name of our Patreon, and you can go ahead and apply for that for a mere $1 a month. Uh, so, um, yeah, in it you find our list of outtakes. Uh, we have some readings that I do. And I will say Roy and I last week recorded some content that I haven't put up yet, but I'll probably put up in the next couple <laughs> of days. Uh, but it was actually a lot of fun. Roy, you had fun with our movie game, right? It was magical. It was great. Yeah, so we, we did a little movie game. And it, was, it was a lot of fun. So uh, totally do that. Uh, other thing, uh, as far as paying our bills, go to uh, zazzle.com slash store slash Rex Bassior. Uh, from there, you can uh, pick up a set of playing, yours, mine, and there's playing cards or a coaster set or whatever else you can find there. Uh, I'm trying to make sure the store is totally updated uh, in the meantime go to facebook find us on facebook to go to uh do a search for facebook yours mine and theirs and uh you can visit the polls you can t- dictate to us what we watch what we see what genres we do uh you can participate you know and and really form where the podcast goes because we have no control over it anymore you do you <laughs> uh go to the blog yours mine theirs podcast.blogspot.com and you can download most of the mp3s directly and if not you go to links to our spotify uh and also listen on spotify make sure you tell all your friends to listen on spotify mike tell all your friends to listen on spotify uh yeah. who gets the most listens and uh the winner probably gets a coaster set at the end of the year <laughs> um and uh let's see what else oh send us an email yours mine there's podcast at gmail.com and uh, we will read it live on the air please don't send us any more voicemail messages uh because our number got disconnected uh so don't do that and also uh make sure you give us five stars on apple podcasts and give us a thumbs up on spotify podcasts and all other places where you can rate podcasts go ahead and do that that's it all right. Thank you. Now, I know you guys don't like hearing our advertisements, but we really believe in those sponsors. Yes. <laughs> they mean a lot to us. So uh, they support us, and we're happy to support them. Yeah. So, All right, you guys. It's time to dig into some awards. Nice. Let's get going. Favorite title, John Madsen. Uh, victory, also known as Escape to Victory, but I prefer Victory. <laughs> all right mike what do you think I, I also chose victory and had the same feeling i saw that alternate title and it doesn't work for me but victory I, I, that's my favorite title yeah oh ah, i went with uh, tel aviv on fire it felt very descriptive i just yeah. didn't see any tel aviv in the whole show <laughs> okay all right well mike what's your favorite movie poster there's already yeah. only one answer here well i'll be curious what y'all think i uh because I, I went back and forth on this, you know, victory, I kind of get it. There's the V, but Michael Caine looked way more buff than Stallone. I, it kind of bothered me in that. Um, but uh, I went with uh, the best poster, and I like them all okay, and I understand them all, but Return of the King. Okay, John? Uh, I didn't like most of Return of the King, but Return of the King is good enough um, that uh, 
are Aragorn looks so sweet in Return of the King that I'm picking that. But it, I should point out it should be Aowen on the poster, not Arwen. Arwen was hardly in the movie at all. So you guys, for heaven's sakes, it's victory. Uh, I have no idea where all those arms are coming from. I think uh, one of them belongs to Stallone and one of them belongs to Kane, but they're just like these weirdly weird arms coming out of nowhere. Fuses and because it makes the V. Yeah, yeah, you've got the V shape there. Yeah. So I think there's like they're like almost it's like a creature like a monster and they're all melted together into this big <laughs> red body yeah and pele's arm is sticking out there too and it looks like it's about to high five stallone's arm it's weird <laughs> it's it's amazing is what it is okay you guys are both wrong but we're going to move on to your favorite real tagline and uh mine is from tel aviv on fire and it's great fun <laughs> <laughs> So, John, what was your favorite real tagline? My favorite real tagline is a take on my fake tagline, which is just, the journey ends. Okay. All right, Mike, favorite tagline? For taglines in third place, the journey ends. I mean, come on. Second place uh, is is actually, I think, the blurb for Tel Aviv on Fire, which is the comedy that crosses borders and breaks boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was very good. But my favorite tagline is, now is the time for heroes. I, I like that. Oh, and victory. Yeah. Heroes who take soccer more seriously than escaping Nazi occupation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Favorite opening credits, Mike. Yeah. And this, there's a couple of these that I'll kind of pass and defer to you guys. And I didn't pay close attention to the opening credits, but I'll make up for it with lots of honorable mentions. I did, I did start paying attention to victory and thought that's kind of a nondescript opening. Um, but it was all right. So I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on this one. Well, oh, the, well, well, it's Tel Aviv on fire. It's it's because it's got soap opera credits. No, the soap opera credits. Yes, that's good. Okay, so I'm picking victory. Here's why: the opening credits were fine, but it's the end credits where everyone gets like the "Remember when I was good at soccer?" portrait, and then it shows their name and what country they're from. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, that those were great, but you're breaking your own rules here. I don't even okay. give a care. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see. Best titular line. What, uh, Mike, you got one of those? Yeah. Oh, there's, there's one clear, definite answer here. And that's the, the crowd crowd. in Paris chanting victoire, victoire. I love that. That's weird. So you didn't like it when, um, Aragorn said, uh, I am the return of the king. (laughs) No, I hated that. I like that part. (laughs) I'm Lord of the Rings, colon, the return of the king. (laughs) I do. I almost picked victoire. I'm glad you picked it because that means. Oh, yeah. I didn't have to get a. A sound clip of that. I almost got a sound clip of Victoire. Roy, maybe. Yeah, yeah that'd be perhaps. neat if someone did. John, let's hear yours. Let's hear mine. There and back again. A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins. And the Lord of the Rings. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. By Frodo Baggins. <laughs> you finished it. Yeah, I completely forgot that they said that together. I know. It's it was masterful <laughs> editing on the movie. Yeah, to like, oh, Very that's nice. the book. That's on the front of the book. Yeah. All right, well here's a shocker. For being honest, the movie's name isn't in French, so Right. That's a yeah. okay. If you watch it in French, it counts. Yeah, I was ready to go, you know fight for france and 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 block a penalty kick i mean all it just it just yeah it was great by the way i found myself on a la marseille rabbit hole and i watched a clip on a guy who did like this youtube thing on like movie moments that are really really important and he picked when they sang la marseille in casablanca right yeah 
And he yeah. said, without that scene, you can't actually believe in what's Paul Henry's character's name. Oh, you're talking uh, about the, the, the Czechoslovakian, the in the Laszlo, Victor Laszlo. Laszlo. Yeah, yeah. He's right. Like he's kind of a weak character until that moment, and yeah. so the entire movie depends on that scene where Laszlo becomes someone that you can believe in, and someone yeah. that Rick can actually believe in. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Whatever. Favorite technology. I'm going to start because it has to be the Bible radio that that guy made in the concentration camp. That's that pretty was, good. Yeah. It's kind of crazy that the by far the best technology is like five things in the concentration camp. <laughs> John, what would you pick? Uh, I have an honorable mention that I'll save just in case Mike picks it. But I'm going to go with the ceiling camera where they have a glasses lens that he puts in and he and he kind of exposes that's how he takes Sylvester Stallone's passport photo. He has like like a glasses oh, yeah. lens that he sticks in and then he kind of like covers the lens and then uncovers yeah. He he <laughs> he, he built that yeah. camera out of a ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Mike, what's your favorite yeah, tech? Our, our best tech all comes from the same movie minus the fake crowd noise used by the German radio <laughs> announcer to kind of click up the yeah. crowd noise when the Germans score because the, the, the stadium's silent, but he wants yeah. the listeners on radio to think the crowd's Yeah, cheering. the crowd's cheering. He has a f- switch that he physically, and it's just it's just like a separate radio next to the microphone. <laughs> right. You can kind of hear. Okay, well, I you didn't take my honorable mention, which I thought for sure. Roy was going to take, but that is the fake dummy Sylvester Stallone made mostly out of latex. (laughs) Oh, that's coming back. Oh, good. Okay. We'll talk about that later. Okay. All right. What's your favorite name, Mike? So many great names in all the films, but I, again, sentimentally, I went with Salam, the main character in Tel Aviv on Fire, because I believe Salam in Arabic means peace. I think it does. Mm. Yeah. I was going to look that up, uh, but I. Isn't that just Arabic for Shalom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. All right, John, what's your favorite name? All right, well, at one point, Mary the Hobbit was renamed by Gandalf or somebody to Mary, Mary Adoc Preston Esquire. <laughs> okay. I think there was an Esquire in there. I may have gone it. I, okay. I may not have jotted it quite down. Well, I love Max von Sydow Steiner. Yeah. Uh, um, but I'm going to go with the name that Stallone wanted to call himself. Marcel Dupin. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, very French. It's a All right, French name. Very, yeah, very good. Uh, so, food, John. What's your favorite food? Okay, quickly, I'm going to say the honorable mention, which is hummus with a ton of lemon in it. <laughs> uh, but the winner, I think this is everyone's winner, and that's Denethor's exploding tomato. <laughs> <laughs> that's a juicy tomato. Yep. Okay. Mike, what about you? Favorite food? I'm rethinking my choice because that's a good one. My honorable mention is salted pork. Whenever I see that scene of the hobbits uh, or the Aragorn, everyone riding up to uh, Isengard and and uh, the hobbits mention the salted pork is particularly good. Uh, but my winner, my clear cut winner, is hummus. And I remember I remembered enough from the film thinking when I watch this, I have to have hummus with me because it'll make me want hummus. And I didn't, but I'm still oh, craving hummus at this moment. <laughs> You probably will be done soon enough. You can go get yourself some hummus. I think I will. Yeah. Yeah. Does uh, Rexburg have uh, a good selection of Middle Eastern cuisine? We don't have the most authentic Arab, Palestinian, or uh, Jewish hummus in the world, but uh, mm. you know the local grocery store. We can we can put it, something together. It's there. at least better than the Jerusalem checkpoint has. Yeah, that, that he put together with the old yeah. fans of Yeah, yeah. I mean, because Asi doesn't even have, yeah, he doesn't have any hummus that's good. 
Well, my honorable mention is figs because they're delicious. But also, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm eating a fig or a date, but I like them both, I think. Nice. So, but my real one, I have an audio clip for it. And this one we had earlier too, but here in another movie, I think uh, White Men Can't Jump. But here you go. Marvelous game. We anticipated it. And so far, it's a sizzler. So they're going to Sizzler. Sizzler. <laughs> oh, we going to Sizzler. <laughs> Thank heavens. <laughs> oh man! All right, best outfit, John. What do you think? Uh, really quickly before I forget, I do want to point out that Denethor's exploding tomato links to uh, um, Tel Aviv on fire because tomato is the yeah, is the, the food, food of love. Of love. Mm, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, the best outfit. I crossed one out because I'll get to it later, and it's. Certainly, um, uh, Salam's like date suit that he gets from wardrobe that's all shiny, the shiny yeah. date suit that he just steals from the He's wardrobe. Looking good, yeah. <laughs> okay. What about you, Mike? Favorite outfit? Yeah, I went with uh, so Hutch, you know, Sylv- Sylvester Salon's character. I just it was kind of intrigued with his outfits because it always seemed like, uh, you know, his shirts were just kind of bursting open. So I can just imagine him <laughs> talking to wardrobe, like, look, I need like I need it to show me like the. The, the fabric can't hold me. Like, it's just going to break <laughs> if I put anything on. Like, I know if it was, like, peacetime, you could probably cover my muscles. But there's a war. There's rationing. So just they got to break. They got to rip. <laughs> like, everything he's wearing is just kind of tearing because his biceps and pecs are so Even big. though he's yeah. skinnier than he's ever been. Hey, he lost yeah. 40 pounds. That surprised me. Wow. And his bosoms are still falling out of his blouse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, my favorite outfit is Tala's wedding dress. It's just lovely. Yeah. Pretty good. Nice. All right. Well, favorite alien, Mike. Who? This was tough. I didn't give as many options here, so I went with uh, uh, Elrond when he shows up to give Theoden his sword. Because, like, where did he come from? And then, whenever I see Elrond, I always think of uh, the Matrix. Anyway, yeah. so, um, so yeah, that's what I went with there. An alien. All right, John. What about uh, you? I went with the mouth of Sauron. Oh yeah. Because um, yeah. he's weird, and also I kind of think he had a Mexican accent, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, John. Okay. All right. Well, my favorite alien is the love child of Vigo the Destroyer and Sloth, also known as Marshmallow Head Orc. That weird. So, yeah, he's definitely some an yeah. alien. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. My favorite special effects is uh, the fake Hutch, which is just <laughs> amazing because I didn't. I thought that he was back in prison uh, <laughs> until they made it they uh, clear him. that it was fake. Yeah, they I was faked out. Look how look how stunned in silence he is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, my special effects is okay because it's amazing enough. There's a lot of great CGI in this, but at one point, Gollum is jumps on top of an invisible Frodo, and Gollum is just <laughs> floating around. And to think, you know, how hard they had to work to first of all film Frodo, and then erase Frodo, and then somehow levitate Gollum on top of an erased Frodo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good tech. Or best effects, yeah. Effects. What about you, Mike? So my honorable mention is also Gollum, but you mentioned this earlier, Roy. Like, uh, or maybe it was John, but just his emotions. Like that—that that was great CGI for back in the day, and because he's such a complex character, and just to capture, there are times when you're very feel very sorry for him, and you see the good that's still a little bit there in him, but then he's kind of overcome by. Uh, the evil and and that's just well done to actually have a, a CGI character that captures those emotions. But my winning uh, special effects is uh, Pele playing the harmonica. Uh, he just I thought at that point is there anything he can't do? He's a, a world <laughs> soccer player. He just 
play a tune on a harmonica as well. <laughs> so it was a couple World Cups ago, but Pele was being interviewed and, and he was asked, like, could your team beat today's Brazil team? And he said, well, it'd be tough because we're 40 years older than they are. But um, and anyway, it was a joke, right? Him, But basically, uh, and I don't even know what the point of that was. So moving on. Okay, your favorite location. I almost said Paris, but occupied Paris, maybe not. But what do you think, John? Uh, I picked Paris because you know why? Because Paris isn't occupied. Oh, oh, that's true. That's what they say in Tel Aviv on fire. In Tel Aviv on fire, yeah. Paris is not occupied. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mike. Yeah, honorable mention, uh, just the West Bank. I just love the footage of that. It's so raw and real in uh, Tel Aviv on fire. Um, uh, and then honorable mention Mordor, just as a nice job. Mordor is just bleak and dreary and dry and gross, and and that's captured well. But the winner is Minas Tirith. Uh, I remember kind of anticipating that in the films. Like the book describes it in great detail. I'm like, how how's Peter Jackson going to show Minas Tirith? And and almost like exactly like the book. He actually that's an impressive location uh, for a film. So I like that. Well, I'm going to go with the Shire because while hundreds of thousands of humans are being slaughtered, they're comparing sizes of pumpkins. <laughs> they're having a good time. So the Shire is where I would prefer to be. All right. Favorite song? Uh, Mike, go ahead. Okay. Honorable mention, uh, the song Aragorn sings at the end as king when he just kind of breaks out into the song and when he's being after his coronation. And one thing I learned from the director's cut is that was his idea, Viggo Mortensen, um, to do that. And I think he kind of made that song. Uh, which has some significance in with the book and the king is kind of a healer and bringing everyone together. But the winner by far, I don't know if this counts as song, but uh, the Battle of Pelennor Fields, when the writers of Rohan go down the hill to kind of save Gondor and the music that's playing, which is called the Battle of Pelennor Fields. I love that that music. I, that, that, that song is incredible. It's on my playlist and, and I listen to it a lot. And so I love that. Very good. All right, John, you have a song. Here song it is. It has no name. Beer so brown? <laughs> I don't I don't know what other color you would want it to be. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right, well, here's my song. What a sad way it's to end right. this game. It's your fellow resistance. Yeah. Yeah. This lasts about five minutes, so hang tight. Nah, it was I love it. Yeah, super duper. Okay. All right. Uh, who's your favorite guest, Mike? <laughs> sorry, you started with me. That's one I blinked on. <laughs> so sorry, I'm going to ask. But I'll make it up for more honorable mentions in other categories. Okay. John, who's your favorite guest? Uh, I have two big honorable mentions. I won't mention them right now. But uh, the winner is Vladimir Putin, who was sitting next <laughs> to Max von Sydow during the soccer match. <laughs> I did some research. Actually, it's Vladimir Putin. I guess his name used to be Arthur Browse, and he used to be an actor, and he played a guy named Lutz. Okay. But it's Vladimir Putin. It's like. <laughs> well, I'm going with Pele. Yeah. Okay. We haven't had any Pele movies so far, so that was the first one. Right. That was one of my honorable mentions. I just wrote down all the soccer players in Victory. <laughs> they're, kind of, they're all guests. Uh, other honorable mention to Britt McKenzie. Half of Flight of the Concords, uh, who 
tells Liv Tyler, we should go, Liv Tyler. <laughs> That's his one moment down the yeah, film. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he must have been like 20 it. years old at the time because it was before Flight of the Concords. All right, Mike, I'm going to test you here. These are some tough uh, mm. awards, external recurring character. So hopefully this one works. I hope I got this one right. I I, I went with it's not a, an actual human being, but it's a thing. But sure. hope. Uh, hope. Because uh, all these films, uh, that's just the main theme is hope and and the importance of sticking together and trusting each other. Like that comes through a lot. That's one of the big things in Lord of the Rings is other you know the ring kind of divides and 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 in in kind of moves people towards a more selfish position. The, the fellowship's all about let's trust each other. Let's let's put faith in each other. Of course, that's a main theme in Tel Aviv on fire. Let's talk. Let's have dialogue and victory. You know, it's all let's let's we're we're gonna kind of stick together and, and, uh, and, and see what we can do. That is an excellent internal recurring character. John, what's uh, your pick for internal recurring character? <laughs> Thanks for changing that for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my internal recurring character, Carol Laurie, uh, who plays Renee in victory, the like hot chick that's part of the resistance that kind of gets chummy with Sylvester Stallone a little bit. And she has a son. Uh, she looks exactly like Liv Tyler. Okay. <laughs> okay. My internal recurring character is unrequited love because you have Tala mm-hmm. who likes Salam, who prefers Miriam. Mm-hmm. You have Aowen who likes Aragorn, who prefers Liv Tyler. And you have Hutch who likes the French girl who prefers Francois. <laughs> Her son. <laughs> very, yeah, good. Yeah. very good. Isn't his okay. name Hatch? You guys have both been saying Hutch. I thought his name it's was Hatch. Hatch. I thought oh. Hutch. Is it Hutch? That was Hatch. Uh, who cares? <laughs> Anyone still listening? All right, John. Okay. External recurring character. Okay, well, this is the biggie. Oldie but a goodie. And you knew I would pick him, uh, but it's Max von Sydow. It yeah. sure is. Yeah, uh, because, um, by the way, he would have been in the Russell Crowe version of Robin Hood had we watched that. And we should have watched the Russell Crowe version <laughs> of Robin Hood. But he was also, of course, in Minority Report. Dune mm. 84, which we kind of watched on the side. Strange yeah. Brew, of course, Conan the Barbarian, Flash Gordon, and The Seventh Seal. All Max von wow. movies that we have watched on this podcast, and we are on the road to watch all of the others. Yep. <laughs> Very good. Okay. All right, Mike, do you have an external recurring character? Yeah, hopefully. And sorry, I got those mixed up. But yeah. I this is a long shot, maybe. But I, when I was looking on IMDb at something, I found, I think this is accurate, that John Huston, the director of Victory, was the voice of Gandalf in the Return of the King cartoon Ooh. that I guess you guys did. Wow. That's, good That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we'll take that okay. one. I'm not even going to bother to look it up because I want it to be true. <laughs> All right. Mike, what's your favorite death? The one that you were just absolutely bloodthirsty to watch. Okay. So I've got a, a few honorable mentions. Uh, any, I mean, so many in Lord of the Rings, you know, dropped, picked up by a Nazgul and dropped, stepped on by an elephant, uh, mm. brushed aside by the tusks. Uh, I put as, as one of the, the best deaths. It wasn't actually a death, but the goalie getting his arm broken might as well be because yeah. that was pretty, pretty, uh, he died in prison. Pretty tough. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, my winner is Denethor. Uh, so what's better than like being on fire and then running off the cliff and dropping uh, down into the city of Minas Tirith? And, and what's kind of weird about that is that was probably the 50th most exciting thing to happen to the people in the city that day. It was just kind of <laughs> another thing. Oh, there's our steward uh, falling down on fire. But uh, <laughs> I went with that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, what's yours? Uh, my death. At one point, several orcs are fighting over Frodo's clothes. And then one orc... Uh, an orc mule kicks, double mule kicks an orc out the window, like in WWF. Oh, yeah. 
Okay, well, I'm going to go with the dispatching of Mr. Lips. I guess you guys call him yeah. the mouth of Sauron, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. just head <laughs> off. That's his friends called him Mr. Lips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, the villains, the Nazis, by the way, because they fake crowd applause. <laughs> they have to buy but, the ref and everything. That's yeah, whatever. Mike, what do you think? You're no, a villain. You stole my thunder. So this is so my honorable mentions for the villains. One is the whole German soccer team okay. uh, because I uh, – I uh, remember you mentioning in an earlier podcast how much you love um, Some Kind of Wonderful. Yeah, That's yeah. also my favorite 80s film. And it just, to me, it looked like the the German soccer team was comprised entirely of Hardy Gens. It, like it was like a team <laughs> of Hardy Gens. And so they're one. Of course, there's lots of options in Lord of the Rings with Shelob and Gollum and Saruman and the ugly orc and Denethor. And Sauron is, of course, the epitome of evil. But I put as my winner, the clear villain, was the Nazi radio announcer in Victory. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Who yeah. was just Definitely. all in on the... Uh, the uh, propaganda. And he, well, and he had a British accent too. Yes, which made it all the more evil yeah. and sinister. Yeah. <laughs> John, what's your pick? Well, uh, Mike mentioned him very briefly, but I went with Denethor because um, I think yeah. in the extended version we get like a full forty-five more minutes of him just like being grumpy <laughs> on the throne. <laughs> John, who's your hero? Okay, you guys better have. We better all agree on the hero. <laughs> the hero is Tony Lewis. Tony Lewis, the guy, the goalie of the team. Who, oh, who takes the arm? Uh, who took the broken arm for the team? <laughs> has to get his arm broken. Yeah, and not only does he not escape, but he also gets his arm broken. <laughs> he gets a broken arm. Yeah. yeah. I'm assuming compound fractures. So oh, yeah. Yeah. we don't see it, but um, the way they do it is like I. Th- that's the noise be a is compound. not good. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, that's not my hero. Mike, Ooh. who's your hero? My hero is Sam. And that was one of the kind of the fun things with uh, watching the films with people who didn't know about the books is I kind of wanted to, I didn't, but I want to say like, keep your eye on Sam. Like he's so, and it's the same thing in the book. You're reading the book and he's just this, he's just this simple guy. He's not very smart. He's not, you know, he's kind of fumbling and bumbling. There's clearly kind of a class distinction between Frodo and Sam. Like they're two different kind of classes of hobbits. And, um, but Sam, he's just good. He he's he's solid. He's simple, but he's good to his heart. He's one of the few that kind of actually handled the ring and was able to hand it back. A little bit of reluctance, but he he gave it back and and he you know he literally carries Frodo up the mountain. He faces off with Shelob. He's just good. He he's my hero. He's he's incorruptible. And that's that's his strength. And and I just love that after all of his exploits in like saving Middle Earth and helping get the ring destroyed and, and everything he went through that at the end he he still has to take a deep breath, take a swig of a beer before approaching Rosie Cotton. That was one of the most terrifying things for him. <laughs> but he but he gets up his courage and and he's just simple and, and he's good. I love Sam. Oh well my hero is also from the Lord of the Rings Colon Return of the King Colon Extended Edition. <laughs> and that's Sam. Hey, all oh. right. Yeah. All the things Mike said. Sam's Sam's the best. Justice for Tony Lewis, whatever. Sure. <laughs> All right. Mike, do you have a favorite movie goof? Yeah. So I already mentioned one, the lighting of the beacons taking two full days for that fire to, to cross those mountain peaks. Um, but my honorable mention was, and this was mentioned before, uh, the soccer crowd at the end as they storm the field. You know, this is like 1943 or 44 Paris, but a lot of them looked like late 70s, early 80s clothes. Probably <laughs> the extras, you know, hey, look like your 1940s, but a lot of them looked uh, just like they would have looked that day walking the streets of Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, what's yours? Uh, I mentioned it earlier and Mike mentioned it just now. It's that same <laughs> the 70 okay. French outfits. Yeah. 
So we've talked about my movie Goof, and you may have solved it, but it, it's the I was flummoxed by the fact that Hutch's escape plan was ruined, but then it worked just fine. And mm. maybe those guards followed the team. I don't know. And he was yeah. okay, whatever. It's just really good okay. at escaping. Yeah. Funniest moment is by far when Stallone tackled a soccer player. <laughs> so, but what do you think, John? Funniest moment? Uh, I have two honorable mentions, so come back to me. But mm-hmm. my winner is uh, as part of their soccer training, um, they do a move where they lie completely down in the grass <laughs> and then they stand up and kick the ball. And I assume it's their strategy for, like, okay, one of our plays is. You know the enemy can't see you, but like hide. if the ball comes near you, you can pop up and kick the ball. <laughs> it's the gopher maneuver. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mike. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I'll I'll build up to my favorite. A couple of honorable mentions. Uh, after Legless brings down the elephant by himself, and he's got that competition with with uh, a Gimli, and Gimli says that still only counts as one. That's a, that's a good line. Um, I liked that, and you mentioned this before. Roy in, in one of your comments on Facebook, I think, but uh, when Ossie's trying to influence the film and he's like, this is how an Israeli general should be, you know, romantic and charismatic and do romantic things like taking her for a ride in his tank. <laughs> that just made me laugh. Just, you know, pick her up in a tank and take her for a ride. Yeah. I, I love uh, when the, the hobbits return to the Shire and they just get kind of the dirty looks like they just saved Middle Earth and they're just kind of looked at as these, you know, these troublemakers, this riffraff that rolled it back in. And then my favorite line though, and just to set it up a little bit, this is and again, for someone who likes funny movies, I didn't choose really funny movies, but this actually made me laugh out loud. And and in a movie with subtitles, you know, that's that's kind of saying something. But I didn't notice this the first time. But when Aussie's kind of, again kind of at its peak of influencing Aussie's the Israeli of influencing this Palestinian soap opera, and there's really. Uh, it's very melodramatic. I love how they play the soap opera with the dramatic music and the actors being so melodramatic as they play everything. It's great. But there's a really kind of poignant line where the Palestinian spy is asking the Israeli general, you know, what are you going to do? He says, Jerusalem will be ours. Like we're going to take over Jerusalem. And to this point, prior to 1967, much of Jerusalem was not under Israeli control, but he's, you know, declaring Jerusalem will be ours. And she says, the, the Palestinian spy, what about the people? the Arabs of Jerusalem and, and she's pretending to be Israeli, but of course she's really concerned about the people who call Jerusalem home. And that's the, it means very much to them. So the line in response, the Israeli general is we have the strongest army in the world. And then the next line, remember who this line is coming from Aussie. And so the next line from, from the Israeli general is we have the strongest army in the world. We'll set up checkpoints and send our best men to control them. Company of Zelf, our best men uh, are going to be the ones controlling the checkpoints after we take over Jerusalem. Because <laughs> his whole life is checkpoints. Like, That's what he does. Yeah. He's the checkpoint guard. That's yeah. what he majored in in the Israeli equivalent of West Point, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Border guard. Yeah. Yes, a chance to impress his wife again. <laughs> All right, John. We had our fun. Now it's time to get serious. What moment made you weep uncontrollably? It's so weepy and sad, I have to name it twice. And that is the fate of Tony Lewis. Uh, <laughs> the broken arm. Informed that uh, we're going to have to snap your arm off now and uh, you're not going to Paris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy this labor camp for another three or four years. Yeah. But at least, you know, you only have to labor with one arm for a little while. Yeah. All right. Mike, did you have a favorite? Yeah, a bunch, uh, so a couple of my favorites, um, the Aussie and, and Salam talking where Aussie just kind of again naively says, Hey, let's have these characters get married and, and that'll kind of solve everything. And Salam just kind of 
you know, look around. Uh, and I think it's in that scene or one of the earlier ones where while Salam and Asi are talking at the checkpoint, they, the Israeli soldiers just bring in like this, you know, 13 year old kid and, uh, and, and say, what do we do with him? He doesn't have any papers. And like, you know, just take him away. I don't have time for him right now. But, you know, that they didn't, that wasn't critical to the plot of the film. I think they just threw that in there as another example of this is the reality of the Palestinians. So we are, we're, yeah. we're kind of dehumanized and, and, and humiliated and, and this, you know, what they call the occupation and stuff. And so it's just kind of that, that helplessness that, that kind of comes through in that scene. And, and you can see the despondency that, that people would have. Another honorable mention is just Sam is they're about to die. Sam and Frodo talking, and he's just thinking about the, the simple things that he misses, you know, water, trees, uh, strawberries, a cozy fire. And, and, and just, a and everything ends happy. But at that moment, it's really sad as he's thinking about these things that, that he can barely remember and recall, but he mentions Rosie Cotton and, and if I would have married someone, it would have been her. And he's just so sad. And, and but my winner um, is actually, and this kind of surprised me, I wasn't anticipating this, but watching it again, Gollum, and just, he's portrayed really well. Um, the sympathetic Gollum, where you see his efforts to try and hold on to that little bit of goodness. And he does have some goodness in him, um, but he just can't, he's just been so corrupted by, you know, hundreds of years of being in possession of the ring and, and kind of that darker side of him ultimately uh, kind of takes over, but, but you just yearn for that good golem, good Smeagol to, to kind of emerge on top. Hmm. Well, I actually have a clip for my saddest moment. Here we go. Why have you come? Do you not know? Oh yeah. Unrequited love. Yeah. And that, that's right out of the book, that line as well. And, and, you know, she says in the movie, something about, you know, that let me come with you or why do you stay? And, you know, your friends go with you um, because they love you. And she's obviously, you know, <laughs> expressing her love. She loves him. And, and his response uh, is great. You know, it's, it's, what is it? It's just, it's just a thought and a shadow, you know, that you love, you kind of love the idea of me. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's tough. That's tender. Uh, Eowyn and, and Aragorn. I, uh, I would have, sorry, now that you're mentioning Eowyn, I wanted to mention this. I think I would have directed the action sequence where she kills the Witch King a little differently. Because uh, I feel like she was just a little too scared. I think she should have, mm. Eowyn would have been bolder and just been like, okay, come on, bring it on, Witch King. <laughs> well, the fact that she kind of stood her ground there when most of the other soldiers, you know, they couldn't even handle the presence of that, that the, the witch king, the, that evil presence, but, uh, Mary as well, Mary or Pippin, I get their names confused. Pippin was able to even, you know, stab the guy and stuff. So, yeah. Okay. I don't want to open up a thing. I just like a real quick answer was, did he stab him with a special sword that made him vulnerable? And then Ewan was able to kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of kind of provided the opportunity. I think he was about to kill Eowyn. The stab by uh, the Hobbit in the back of his leg um, kind of bought Eowyn time to stand up and 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 take off. You know, do her big scene with "I'm no man." And, well, was it an Achilles so heel kind of thing where it's like the type mm-hmm. of blade? Like, was it like an Elvish blade or something? It was a dissolvy blade. It dissolved it when it's It was actually the blade that he picked up. Um, and this is skipped entirely in Fellowship of the Rings, just where they, they get the Barrow Downs and they actually are 
these old uh, swords of the West, they have kind of special powers. And he probably just gets it right between like the arm or kind of in the back of the knee or something. And it does dissolve because it's it's the power of that uh, evil presence. And he's he, he's affected as well. I think I think it kind of shows in the movie like his arm is got real serious problems after that, just coming in contact with that uh, evil presence. He's never getting married. <laughs> Which is also sad. All right. Uh, what the heck? John, you've given this part five or ten different awards, but I'm going to go with when the goalie gets, got his arm broken. Okay. <laughs> Finally. Okay. Yeah. Gets his due. Mike, do you have a what the heck moment? Yeah, and I already talked about it. The, the ghosts going on and on and taking the city, that mm-hmm. still bothers me. It bothered me watching. I'm like, wait a minute, because it just took away from, from Rohan. Mm, John, what about you? This is the first time I've seen the extended version. And so I'm like, okay, what's in this extra hour? Little little did I know that uh, probably about 50 minutes of the extra hour is... And I know I already said we got 45 extra minutes of Denethor, but no, 50 extra minutes uh, was exactly the Army of the Dead. And it was all just footage that was re-released a couple years later as Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. So it's time to talk quotes, favorite mm-hmm. quotes. Mike, do you have a favorite quote? We do. Sorry, a few honorable mentions because there's so many good ones. My winner is one that I've already mentioned. Is there nothing between bombs and surrender? I love that That's one. one of my honorable mentions. Oh. Okay. John, what about you? What's your winner? Play it. That's right. Here it is. Oh, hey, Stupid bloody yacht. <laughs> what the hell do you think this is? Bloody hell. Well, what I do? You know bloody well. Now you tell me what I do. You cannot tackle like that in soccer. I've been telling you that for a bloody I year. I go up with a ball. You use that bloody American style again here and you'll be barred. Like you're playing English, I play American. Well, don't play the bloody American game. Get off. So that's the, <laughs> the, 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 the bloodiest Michael Caine line reading. <laughs> so he's been playing wrong for a year. How has he not learned that rule in a year's worth of playing? Don't knock people over. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, my one of my other honorable mentions is you can get married in hell. So I thought that was pretty great. And then here is my quote: "You fool! No man can kill me. I am no man." Great line. Yay. All right. Best scene. I'm just going to get mine out of the way. You, uh, here we go. What a sad way to end this game. Anyway, you know it. Yeah. Well, that's mine. That's mine. I'll just say it. Is it really? Yeah. Wait, was that the end of victory or was that halftime? That was the end. Uh, no, it's after halftime, isn't it? it? It's just the when the crowd like finally feels proud and gets into it and sings the national. Oh, anthem. okay. It's no, actually, great. my scene is just after that. Well, it's it's the very very end of victory. It's when they knock everything down, the switching of the clothes, doing all that stuff. That's that's my scene. Uh, yeah. Michael, what about you? What's your favorite yeah. scene? Can I go back to my honorable mention best quotes? Oh, I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm an awful here's person. Go ahead. There's so many great lines. So just a few rapid fire. Do you know the sign that two people are in love? They listen to each other from Tel Aviv on fire. From Lord of the Rings, uh, when Sam and Frodo are just kind of, uh, you know, in despair, in Mordor, it's looking so hopeless. And and the, the smoke parts for just a second. Sam spots a star. And he says, see, there's light up there that no darkness can touch. I love that line. Uh, a great line from Gimli is he's kind of wishing, like we're talking about, if, there, if we could get more people involved in this war. And, and he said, uh, give me a legion of dwarves. Fully armed and filthy. 
<laughs> just a great line. Uh, and uh, um, Gandalf, uh, when they're about to die, to uh, to Pippin, saying, uh, "You know, death is not the end. Death is just another path we all must take." We already did Theoden's line. I go to my fathers, in whose mighty company I shall not now be ashamed. The eagles are coming, uh, and then. Um, uh, I already said, well, I'm back. I love that line. And this was interesting, listening to the director's uh, uh, comment, Peter Jackson's favorite scene in, in all of them is when, uh, at the end, when when Aragorn's crowned king and, and they all kneel to the hobbits. And he just said he loves that. And so Aragorn's line, you bow to no one, speaking to the hobbits, and everyone bows. And then I love, again, the hobbits go back to the Shire and they <laughs> have no <laughs> regard <laughs> from anyone in the Shire, but he just had all of Middle-earth bowing to them for yeah. what they had done. I would arrive back in the sh- in the Shire, and after one week, I'd be like, uh, "Gondor likes me, <laughs> right?" Yes, and I'd be heading right back there. So I also do like the Gimli line where he says, uh, "What does he say? Uh, uh, certain death, no chance of success. What are we waiting for?" Right. <laughs> Great lines. All right, John. Or let's see, we're oh. doing scene, right? So, yeah. Mike. You both had the same one, and I've got a few honorable mentions here. But my, well, you've both done your best scene, right? So yeah, can I mention yeah. my honorable mentions? Do so Pele's goal and and Max von Sydow's applause. I love that. That's really well done. Again, yeah. 1981 tech, and and I like that. You know, a little bit cheesy to kind of go back and replay it in slow motion and zoom in on Pele's face, but it worked. I thought it was really good, and I love Max von Sydow. Just you know, he can't help it. He's going to stand up and applaud that uh, again as an honorable mention. The French scene, the national anthem, great scene. The final scene of Tel Aviv on fire with the surprise of Aussie appearing on the show. <laughs> the, the, the group I was watching with initially, and everyone just kind of cheered and applauded. Just a fun ending. Um, I already mentioned the scene of, of terrorist and freedom fighter. Just a really poignant scene there. I love when at the final battle, when they're trying to create the distraction of the, the Black Gate, that Frodo, or sorry, Merry and Pippin just take off, you know, for Frodo and, and, and they're hobbits and they're, and they're, they're just running uh, into almost certain death. But my favorite um, favorite scene uh, by far uh, is the ride of the Rohirrim. When when the the riders of Rohan finally arrive, they look down on what's you know Minas Tirith is about to fall. I love what Theoden does here. I love his face as he kind of takes it in. Everyone kind of is like, oh shoot, <laughs> like this. We're way outnumbered. But he just kind of steals himself. And one thing I learned watching the director's commentary. Uh, first of all, this Peter Jackson loves the scene as well, and he talked about how he pictured that scene in particular years before, and he talked about the moment he kind of came to him. It was very specific of where he was and how he just saw the scene, the different takes, how it would play out, and it's a really important scene to him. It's really powerful uh, in the book, and and, and interesting, you, you can picture Theoden kind of riding down the line and hitting his sword against the spears. Peter Jackson mentioned in the commentary that that was actually uh, his idea, the, the actor who plays Theoden, and, and decided to, he thought that would be a nice effect, and they're really glad they ended up doing it. And just an interesting side note, he's actually left-handed, but because of the angle of the camera, he had to ride with the sword in his right hand, and it was a little awkward for him, but he he pulled it off. I, I've probably watched that scene a hundred times. I, again, I love the music. I love, and another interesting note, the it's actually exactly 6,000 uh, horsemen that are in the scene I, I assume between the real horses and there must have been some CGI, but that's the exact number uh, in the book. So it's it's wow. it's actually accurate to the actual count of riders of Rohan coming uh, to the rescue of, of Gondor. Well, all right. So we are down to one of the final awards, and this is Best Actor. 
Mike, who just knocked your socks off? So we've talked a lot about Max von Sydow. I love him. He's my honorable mention. And I love the casting of Lord of the Rings. Like, it's hard for me to remember how I pictured the characters in my mind before the films, because I definitely did. Tolkien does a great job of describing each character. But now I can't separate that from from the characters in the film. And I thought they did an excellent job. All the, the actors in the film, I thought, did a really good job with their characters. But I would give it to Viggo Mortensen. I think he played Aragorn so well. He he just he epitomized uh, Aragorn, where he's he's clearly uh, amazing. He's got this uh, great intellect and tremendous skill and ability, but there's just that little bit of self doubt. Many times in the film, you know, he's he 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 knows kind of what he's supposed to be, but he also knows the fallibility of his line, his you know, back to Isildur, and and so there's kind of that self doubt, which actually. Uh, is works to his advantage because you've got someone like Boromir who's supremely confident and and he ends up kind of getting corrupted. So Aragorn's, he's tremendously strong, but that kind of measure of humility and, 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 and awareness of his fallibility makes him even stronger and less corruptible. And well, he just plays that part really well. So I'd give it to Viggo Mortensen. All right. And his name's Viggo. So that's pretty good. <laughs> John, what about you? Michael Kane. bloody right okay uh so i'm gonna give it to sylvester stallone no i'm just kidding so (laughs) let's go with sean astin i think he's pretty great (laughs) okay we have three mike awards you're not allowed to vote here mike Mm. you just gotta take it okay (laughs) okay so the mikeiest character my pick is sam Hey, I'll take it. I love that. Good old loyal Sam. John, what do you think? I just want to point out that I had two LOL honorable mentions, and I'm going to mention them here because I uh, do it now. Uh, the first is the recurring joke that Sylvester Stallone has Hatch outside influences say, okay, you have to escape over here. You have to go back to camp. You have to play the soccer game. You have to like go back at halftime. Uh, all of those things where he's like, this is not part of my plan. Why are all these things interfering? So I like that. And then, of course, uh, when Pippin is singing to Denethor while Faramir's men are getting mm-hmm. slaughtered. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> so it is up there. Okay. My Micah's character. I think uh, a guy, I think the character's name is Sherlock, spelled S-H-U-R-L-O-C-K. It's one mm-hmm. of the guys in the the camp the allied camp, the one of the British guys, it's like the yeah. helper of the guy with the mustache who has the glasses and he kind of yeah. has the goatee and the blonde hair. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, John, what's the most Mikey scene? Well, the most Mikey scene is when Aragorn and his people are completely surrounded and they yell for Frodo because it's the yeah. ultimate impossible dream. And Mike, uh, I'll always think of you as Don Quixote. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I should have like made my choices here now instead of before we had this discussion and when john when you put this podcast together and it will become apparent that we spent 95 percent of this podcast talking about one movie <laughs> um but i'm gonna go with i, I i'll stick with what i have the wedding from yeah. uh, tel aviv on fire yeah that counts so, yeah. yeah i like it because you would also like to have your wedding ruined and get thrown in prison. <laughs> all right, John, uh, what's your most Mike movie? Most Mike movie. Okay, first of all, I would say victory, but Mike's feet are too precious for soccer balls. <laughs> uh, and I would say Tel Aviv on Fire is very close, but I got to go with Return of the King because, uh, you know, I've known 
uh, I've known Mike for how many years now? I guess my, all my oh, years. Um, he's 10. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Lord of the Rings is one of the few actual fantastic fictional, not real life things that you're into. Yeah. So I got to respect true. that. So. That's true. <laughs> uh, I also picked the Return of the King. Nice. Okay, and I think I changed that as we were having this discussion in this <laughs> podcast. So, all right, we got to rank these films. Their average is 84%, by mm. the way, on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is because Victory pulls uh. us down with a 70. Ooh. 70 is still respectable. Uh, Lord of the Rings, 94%. Wow. Tel Aviv on Fire is still 89. That's not <laughs> bad. Yeah. So you should know that Victory cost $10 million and it made $11 million. Hey, okay, that's right. a profit. <laughs> Yeah, Tel Aviv on fire cost three point five million. It made four point five million. Same Beautiful. profit the victory made. Oh. But which side then, did those profits go to? <laughs> okay, and then the Return of the King. What astounds me about this is that it only cost ninety four million dollars to make that film. Wow, and it made a modest one point two billion. <laughs> wow, because it was like on average. I, I guess that was the one of the budget things of filming them all at once. Yeah, mm-hmm. it could be. So on IMDb, by the way, Lord of the Rings is way above the rest with a 9.0, which is, that's crazy high for IMDb. top 10. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but we got to rank these. So Mike, we're going to have you start with your number three so you can do your final, you can be the last person to reveal your number two and number one. So yeah, um, your third favorite. Yeah, obviously I I really like them all, but if I have to rank them, I would put victory as number three. Hmm. John, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Tel Aviv on fire. Cause I really, really liked it, but you know, subtitles. <laughs> yeah. They're the worst. Okay. I'm uh, going to go with victory. So I really enjoyed victory. You picked three really good movies. So, uh, victory is a lot of fun, but that's my number three. And since we're swinging back around, this was tough for me, but I thought like on such a small budget and filmed in a foreign country and just this cute little cast, my number two is the Lord of the Rings return of the King. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it was. It did have a cute little cast. That it did. I will say that, like, while watching this movie, especially towards the end, there was part of me that's like, "This is the greatest movie ever made." And now that it's been a few days, like that excitement has worn off. I think I have to be close to it. Yeah, yeah. It's. Yeah. It's. I guess it's really good while you're there. It's like, okay, I'm gonna go here for a while. But after it's over, you're kind of like, it's like coming back from vacation. I'm, I'm glad to be home after it's over. Yes. And I, I'm reminded that it was four and a half hours long. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I had my stadium buddy, so I didn't have to go anywhere. So, Good to know. Uh, John, then you're number two. My number two is a little old modest film called uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. <laughs> Uh, all right, Mike, so you can tell us your number two and your number one. Yeah, my number two, and again, I love them all, but my number two is Tel Aviv on Fire. I love that film a lot. But my number one is Return of the King. And, and the reason is, uh, well, there's lots of reasons, but but to because it's such a big production, you think of how many people were involved in this film and you talk about how long the credits are, to have that huge of a budget, that huge of a cast, and, and yet still, I think, to kind of nail it and to have... Uh, it, it, it just work. And, and I know maybe it, like having it be a tight film probably doesn't make sense when it's that long, but it just maintains its integrity. It, it's true to kind of what it is. And, and I think that kind of focus is maintained uh, even though you've got so many people involved in the film. I just appreciate it for excellent filmmaking. 
All right. So actually, no surprises from either of you. If I had been asked to pick your rankings, that's, I, I think you both did what I thought you would do. Um, right, because you know I've great. been trying to watch Victory for several years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like on our spreadsheet of, of categories like football, uh, which is like for soccer or football, was like in the first five categories we ever made. Yeah. And it's because of victory. That's why because that category victory was there. Yeah, as, as, as the example. And I just, I still yeah. want to say, you know, um, I was not disappointed watching victory. It was my favorite. No. no. It, it kind of feels like just an old school, just rollicking yeah. cinema time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I loved it. So I, I, for, for me, for, I think Tel Aviv on fire was just so ador- adorable and it was yeah. heartfelt and, but it was like serious and it was just a wonderful balance. And I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Good. And uh, would have a good time watching it again yeah. in under ninety minutes. So yeah, now all three of these movies are definitely not equal, but it's a good sign of good picking that we all picked a different one to win. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, about about half an hour ago, I had Lord of the Rings as my number one. But mm. uh, what can you do? That's how it works. So guys, it is time to talk about the future. Mike, you had your fun. You got to pick yeah. your own movies, but now you're stuck. With some with some just garbage. So here we go. I, let me do a quick refresh. I think you actually are about to pick two movies because even though we have ninety five votes, it's just impossible to, for people to not tie. I don't. Uh-huh. What's your problem, voters? Can't you not have a tie for once? So, Mike, you get to choose between Tommy Boy and uh, let's see, what about Bob? Oh. And, so this is for odd couple movies. So which of those two would you like to reward the fans with? So, yeah, if those are my choices there, I actually, um, I'm going to choose what about Bob? And this is the reason. Uh, so all we've all like, this comes up on lots of podcasts, you know, some of us serve these missions. And, and so we basically lose two years. There's a two year gap in like our kind of cultural uh, knowledge and, and pop culture. And I've had so many people tell me, that I would love the movie What About Bob, and I've never seen it. So You've never uh, seen it. I've never seen What About Bob. So I'll choose that one because yeah, I'm eager to uh, to see what the what everyone's been talking about, and and I'm going into it expecting that I will like it because a lot of people have told me, knowing my sense of humor, that I would like that movie. So my father hates that movie <laughs> with a passion because I guess he's just been a bishop a couple times mm-hmm. in the good old LDS church, and he says that. Every time he's been a bishop, there's been a Bob in the ward. And he just like, so we're supposed to kind of sympathize with Bob in this movie. But my my dad just, he can't, he just can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, what do we got? All right. Uh, it's not on here. I'm dang it. I probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping so bad you would indulge me and then and, and like enemy mine. Enemy mine. Why are we watching a movie about Lewis Gossett Jr. as an alien? But go ahead, John, I, what's your pick? Maybe we should. I do love enemy mine. I think it's I think it's a great film. I just want to say, Mike, I didn't discuss this with you, but the movie mm-hmm. I'd like to pick is a movie called Midnight Run, um, huh. and it's got it's Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro is a mismatched couple, like uh-huh. kind of on the run. You know, there's a story. You know, they're kind of thrown together. What year is that? That's a uh, 1988, uh, or is it 88 or 90? 88, 88. Uh, IMDb says 88. 88. Okay. okay. All right, Mike. So we have a comedy. We got a cop movie. That makes me happy. Mike, what do we got? What's your official pick? Oh, so I get to just choose uh, one of the others that was on the... Uh, you can the, choose whatever you want. Okay. It can be one from the list or just something okay. that you're like, I would like to do it. 
Yeah, it's one from the list and it did get a lot of votes. And and the reason I would choose this one is because this is one I will uh, have a, a very willing uh, partner to watch my wife uh, and I like the movie Notting Hill. I think that you said, John, I think you mentioned that odd couples wouldn't necessarily be a romantic thing, but uh, but that's on there. So uh, on there. We'll, we'll, I'll choose Notting Hill. That's- we may have had like an original discussion where we're like, okay, odd couples doesn't include romantic comedies. But when I was looking into the genre, like there's so many great romantic comedies where it's like, Two people who should never end up together, but then, you know, do, right? I, I didn't have enough time, and it's too late. We're watching Notting Hill. That's fine. Whatever. Katie loves it. It's great. But um, I, I did not have time to capture the sequence in our last podcast where we agreed no romance. Because <laughs> it does exist if you if you want to listen. But okay. I'm hearing it, yeah. So I'm, I'm thrilled, though, uh, and, and I think it works great, right? It's like... Yeah, I mean, the odd couple here is like super common man versus yeah. mega superstar, right? And yeah. can it work out? It's so. fun. Perfect. It's an adorable movie. I love Perfect. it. So, all right. That is it. So, uh, we don't have a category that we voted on because after we do odd couple films, we will be watching movies that John has never seen. Yes. Wow. Would right. you say you know what three? Or are you still thinking? Uh, I, I, I have a list of about 25 movies right now. So, it's, it's in process. <sighs> I've narrowed, so I'm going to be doing the same thing in a couple months. I've narrowed mine down to about 10, and I have like the two that I'm going to do for sure, and the third one, I just, I have no idea how I'm going to do it. Um, Okay, John, and normally we would also pick some categories here uh, to vote upon, but there's nothing to vote for because after that, it's Katie's birth month movies. Oh. Okay. Uh, Okay, so that's, that's next, that's coming up. Okay, so that's, and that's after my new movies then it's katie's when when is bill's turn <laughs> bill fillmore yeah. uh are you serious bill you, you, you think bill fillmore's coming on the podcast bill fillmore's coming on the podcast <laughs> oh that was a lie you did, okay I'm, I'm glad you thought that was true i that, wanted it to be true weird. yeah okay <laughs> never mind if i ever invite bill fillmore on the podcast i can just guarantee you we're watching a man for all seasons and maybe dr zhivago <laughs> <laughs> i'm in I'm in. That sounds okay. great. Are you kidding me? Come on. All right. All right. Well, I'm watching the trailer for Midnight Run, and uh, De Niro shoots down a helicopter with a handgun. <laughs> right. He better. <laughs> and that helicopter just exploded. Wow, that was something else. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. Okay, folks. I mean, that's the podcast. So please go immediately steal and watch What About Bob, Midnight Run, and Notting Hill. And uh, we will see you in two weeks. Fantastic. Mike, thanks so much. It's been a blast. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, guys. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, how well that would be to, like, watch in your home. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just say I can, I'll find a way to watch it. And But, yeah, I, I, I think we can make that work. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm just on IMDb, 119 uses of that word. So it's, <laughs> there is some frequency. Well, I don't know. Yeah, so-